How can I? Why do I always forget that? I, I remember now. David Feldman show He's talking politics And comedy too He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to He's just a lefty From way back He's a union man With an Emmy for writing Someday he's mad And he feels like fighting The David Feldman Show To get your ears on right Buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say And he's coming your way God's about to bring the whole house down, ladies and gentlemen. These bunch of sex trafficking mongrels are about to be exposed. These bunch of pedophiles in Hollywood are going to be exposed for who they are. I don't care what you think about fraudulent Sleepy Joe. He's a sex trafficking, demon-possessed mongrel. He's of the left. He ain't no better than the Pope and Oprah Winfrey and Tom Hanks and the rest of that wicked crowd. God is going to bring the whole house down. I said he's going to bring the whole house down. He's going to burn the whole thing to the ground. He's going to expose all these bunch of pedophiles. I'm telling you, he's going to expose Kamala Harris for the Jezebel demon that she is. Attention Walmart shoppers and associates. My name is Beth from Electronics. I've been working at Walmart for almost five years, and I can say that everyone here is overworked and underpaid. The attendant policy is bullshit. We are treated for management 
and customers poorly every day. Whenever we have a problem with it, we're told that we're replaceable. I'm tired of the constant gaslighting. This company treats their elderly associates like shit. To Jared, our store manager, you're a pervert. Greta and Kathy, shame on y'all for treating your associates the way you do. I hope you don't speak to your families the way you speak to us. Shout out to Kamonique, Patty, Shardell, and so many more. Walmart doesn't deserve y'all. Fuck manage it and fuck this job. I quit. Just like the AIDS vaccine. Let's not lie. Well, it's, I guess I would ask myself, like, I mean, I lie. If I'm really cornered or something, I lie. I really try not to. I try never to lie on TV. I, try, I just don't, you know, I don't like lying. I certainly do it, you know, out of weakness or whatever. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. You happy, self-actualized hump. From our platforms to our labs, offices, and facilities, and in communities around the world, we're continuously innovating to provide the energy solutions that advance modern life. ExxonMobil. The AIDS diet plan helped me lose 28 pounds. AIDS helps control your appetite so you lose weight. Yet AIDS lets you taste, chew, and enjoy. And the appetite suppressant in AIDS is not a stimulant. AIDS helped me to lose 18 pounds, and it doesn't contain anything to make me nervous. Question, why take diet pills when you can enjoy AIDS? AIDS helps you lose weight without making you jittery. Thank you. That is a real ad for a diet candy that was very popular up until about 1983. And then something happened. I don't quite remember. Welcome to the mop up for is it really? It can it be? No, it cannot be October, September. What is it? September 27th, 2021. I'm David Feldman. Please uh, friend me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter. I have no Twitter followers and I'm trying to build 
I'm trying to build up my Twitter followers. So if you can be kind and subscribe to my Twitter feed, it's a very effective way to let you know when a new episode has dropped and who's on it. We're, we're trying to do uh, polls on Twitter. We post highlights from the show. So go to Twitter and follow David Feldman. And of course, friend me on Facebook. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in New York City, where it is the first day of it isn't the first day of autumn. It's our first show for autumn. It's autumn in New York. The leaves are starting to change. There's no better way to enjoy the leaves than driving up to the Adirondacks, the Adirondacks, the Adirondacks. In upstate New York, I don't take vacations. In upstate New York, it's right uh, at a, uh, for, it's right near our state capital in Albany. The Adirondacks is protected wilderness. It's in New York's constitution. It's constitutionally protected. The Adirondacks are constitutionally protected for more than a hundred years. No mining, no logging. How did this happen? Well, Professor Adnan Hussein joins us at 8.30 and introduces us to Brad Admanson. He's the author of A Wild Idea, How the Environmental Movement Tamed the Adirondacks. All right, let's take a look at our starting lineup. What do you say? We have a great show planned for you. Coming up at the top of the hour, Dave Cyrus will be joining us. And then Mayor Brian Osadio, he's the mayor of Delano, California. He is running for Congress. I believe it is in the... Where is he running? 21st, California's 21st district. And we've had him on the show before. He needs to raise money and he's endorsed by Howie Klein, who comes at seven o'clock. And then, as mentioned earlier, David Cobb, Harriet Fraud, Dr. Harriet Fraud. And then, of course, Brad Edmondson joins us with Professor Adnan Hussein. We also have a YouTube channel, so please subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's slowly growing. And don't forget, it's the first Friday of the month. So this Friday, it's office hours and hello there, office hours and hours. We start at 8 p.m. Eastern and we go for 24 hours straight office hours and hours. If you would like to attend, go to davidfeldmanshow.com and hit a uh, hit the, the thing that says office hours and we'll send you a uh, an invitation. Then at nine, Peter B. Collins, followed by Professor Mary Ann Cumming. Somewhere along the line, we will check in with Dan Frankenberger for our community billboard. So, uh, yes, what's happening in the news? What is going on before we bring in Dave Cyrus? Let's go to Germany, where they have moved slightly to the left after 16 years under the leadership of Angela Merkel. The, uh, the Germans have voted and they have moved away from Angela Merkel, Merkel's center-right party known as the Union Bloc. The Germans voted yesterday, and they narrowly have asked the center-left Social Democrats under the leadership of Olaf Schultz 
to form a government. Social Democrats will be forced to form a coalition with the environmentalist Greens and the business-friendly Free Democrats. Germany is Europe's largest economy, and they're moving, we think, we think slightly to the left, ever so slightly. Well, with the COVID virus now killing 688,000 Americans, President Joe Biden rolled up his sleeve on Monday and got a booster shot. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, as well as the Food and Drug Administration, are advising that if you've already gotten two Pfizer vaccines, you need a third. You need a booster shot. And that's for Americans who are 65 or older, as well as any Americans who have pre-existing medical conditions or if you work in a uh, high-risk environment. And uh, at least so far, 2.6 million Americans have gotten a booster shot, the Pfizer booster shot. That's since mid-August. 100 million Americans have been fully vaccinated uh, through the Pfizer shot. And again, U.S. regulators are recommending that you get the Pfizer shot. If you already got the Pfizer shot six months after the second shot, it's time for your booster shot. If you're 65 years or older, or if you're in a job where you come into contact with people who sneeze. The Biden administration on Monday facing intense criticism for its treatment of Haitian immigrants, about 12,000 I'm pleased to say, have been absorbed into our country. Thousands were sent back to Haiti, which is just torture to treat people that way. We have absorbed about 12,000 Haitian migrants into our system. So the Biden administration is beginning to do some damage control here. And on Monday, the Biden administration tried to breathe life into Barack Obama's Dreamer program, which would provide temporary citizenship to hundreds of thousands of Americans who were brought to this country by their parents. They weren't born here, but they were brought to this country by their parents. And the Dreamer proposal would make these Dreamers part of our society. And it would be a step towards citizenship. It can't pass in the Senate or the House. So the Dreamers Act is an executive order which keeps getting challenged by the Republicans in the courts. And a federal judge in Houston ruled in July that the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, otherwise known as DACA or the Dreamers, they uh, this judge in Houston ruled uh, in the middle of the summer that the Obama administration had overstepped its bounds by issuing an executive order because it didn't take into account public opinion. This has been in effect since 2012 and constantly getting challenged in in the courts. But but on Monday, the the Biden administration uh, issued a new executive order that will hopefully uh, hold up in court. This is 
absolute torture to treat young people this way. This has been going on since 2012. And these these Americans came to our country with their parents. They didn't ask to come here and they're stuck and we should be uh, treating them a lot better. One foreigner, this country had no problem being welcomed is uh, the Indian Prime Minister, Narendra Modi. Modi met with Vice President Harris and met with Joe Biden. Modi has been accused of possessing authoritarian impulses. The Prime Minister of India welcomed to this country. He uh, has shut down the internet in places like Kashmir. He has arrested former ministers who didn't agree with him. He continues to arrest political opponents. Critics say Prime Minister Modi is moving India towards an illiberal, anti-democratic, authoritarian state as he grapples with a massive failure on his part to protect his people from COVID. Modi has used his police to terrorize Muslims as his central government's police force morphs into a surveillance state. But he was welcomed into America as a strategic partner. R. Kelly, the R&B superstar, you know, I believe I can fly. He was convicted today on sex trafficking charges. It's been going on for decades. He had avoided a criminal trial up until now. A jury of seven men and five women found R. Kelly guilty of racketeering and uh, the charges stuck. Several accusers accused R. Kelly of subjecting them to sadistic, perverse sexual acts. And uh, Kelly was also convicted of violating the Mann Act, which makes it illegal to take anyone across state lines for any immoral purpose. We'll see if Matt Gates gets uh, convicted on that as well. Well, from R. Kelly to Greg Kelly, I have a quick correction. We correct ourselves on this show. I played a clip from the racist Greg Kelly. He has a show on Newsmax. He is the son of the former police commissioner of New York City, Raymond Kelly. Raymond Kelly served longer than any police commissioner in New York City history and he's considered one of the uh one of the good guys this is what uh i played last friday pay attention now we went looking for this uh white supremacy stuff that they're talking about right the violence and the danger that's posed we actually did find some evidence from 1923 this is the last substantial turnout we could see or we could find of white supremacy. Look, it's a boogeyman. It's a false boogeyman. So that's uh, Greg Kelly, and he's claiming, and I talked about this. I'm about to make a correction. He's talking about white supremacy being non-existent since when? When was the last time? From 1923. Okay, so he says there has been no substantial white, I I can't laugh at that, no substantial white supremacy since? From 1923. From 1923, when the KKK marched on the streets of Washington, D.C. Well, obviously, 
he's an ignorant racist. And his father, who was the police commissioner of New York City longer than any other police commissioner, instilled in him a hatred and intolerance for black people. That's why Raymond Kelly is responsible for stop and frisk in New York City. His son is an inveterate racist, had to take down some tweets saying that when he served in the military, he was glad that the defense secretary was white. It was good for his morale. This is a racist. This is a racist. And we have a correction to make that I should have noticed. He said there has been no substantial white supremacy since... From 1923. Okay, so let's correct that. Uh, I have a close-up there, and you can see the KKK marching. He's running a clip from British Pathé, and he says it's... From 1923. But look at what it says there. That says 1925. You were saying... From 1923. But you're showing a clip from 1925, it says... It doesn't jibe. It, I guess, you know, when you're ignorant, you're a racist. And when you're a racist, you're ignorant, Greg Kelly. You really are ignorant. Well, speaking of willful ignorance, Bill, I've stopped reading Marr, was talking about the Democrats. And one of the things faux liberals, faux lefties like to do, is distract from the real issues facing the left, and that is income inequality. The people like Bill Maher won't ever have union organizers on his show. He won't interview the 99%. He likes to horse race, and he likes to portray his Democratic Party as weak. That's the M.O. for phony liberals, phony lefties like Bill Maher. They like to attack the Democrats for being weak because that gives them wiggle room to be critical of the Democratic Party without attacking the Democratic Party for what it should be attacked for. And that is not supporting unions, not raising taxes on people like Bill Maher not supporting the 99%, not supporting the dreamers. You don't hear Bill talking about the plight of the 99%, but he wants it both ways. He doesn't want to be an ugly right winger. So it's cooler to call yourself a liberal and cooler to call yourself a lefty because he says fuck and smokes dope and never got married and he likes to have a lot of sex. He doesn't want to be identified with the right, but he loves having money and he's not a proponent of more unions. He's not screaming for us to get into the Paris climate accord and fight climate change. His criticism and, it, and it's an M.O. for fake Democrats. The Democrats aren't strong enough. And that's a lie. The Democrats are strong. That's the problem. They're strong in supporting corporations. They're not strong. They're not giving full-throated support for the unions, Bill. So I have a problem when Bill Maher brings on phony never-Trumpers like Jennifer Rubin for, from the Washington Post. She is a a lawyer. 
She was a union lawyer in Hollywood, but she worked for the studios, you see. She studied labor law and worked for the studios. And I'm sure she studied labor law and then went to work for the studios to try to help Disney become more inclusive with the labor, the craftsmen and, and the Writers Guild and IATSE, IATSE, right? That's why she uh, went to work for the studios to represent the unions. Jennifer Rubin, about 10 years ago, decided she was bored with the law and she wanted to be a columnist. And there was an opening at the Weekly Standard, Bill Crystal's rag, which has now gone out of business. And it's very easy or was easy to write for the Weekly Standard because it was a tool of the oligarchs. It was funded by Rupert Murdoch and you didn't have to check your facts. That's why Tucker Carlson could write there. That's why David Brooks from The New York Times could write there. And that's why when Bill Crystal was temporarily given a column by the New York Times, they had to fire him. You can look this up because he couldn't keep his facts straight. You don't have to keep your facts straight if you're writing for the Weekly Standard or if you're somebody who is trying to protect Rupert Murdoch's fortune. That's why the Weekly Standard was funded by Rupert Murdoch to protect his fortune. Okay, so all the people that Bill Maher, this multi multi millionaire with a multi multi million dollar a week show, all the guests that he could fly in and have on his show, Ralph Nader, one of the union leaders, Mike Elk from Payday Report, he chooses to have Jennifer Rubin on the conservative columnist from the Washington Post, who is now a never Trumper because she got hurt by Trump supporters. She hasn't changed her position. She discovered that Trump supporters were just as malicious, if not more so, if that's possible, if that's possible, than she is. She is a vindictive, malicious writer who has uh, accused Obama of being either a Muslim or a Muslim sympathizer because he supported building a mosque near Ground Zero. This is who Jennifer Rubin is. She has vilified the Palestinians in Israel. She was against the Iran nuclear deal. She was against the Paris Climate Accords. She's arrogant and she doesn't have to check her facts and she's irresponsible and her feelings got hurt by Trump supporters. So, so she became a never Trumper and she came over as Bill Crystal did to our side thinking that we would welcome her. We don't want you, Jennifer Rubin. We got enough phony Democrats in the Democratic Party. We don't want you. We hate you just as much as the Republican Party hates you because you're a hateful human being. I've read what you've written and you're all over the map. You're an opportunistic infection looking for, for, for some place to belong. You belong nowhere because you, you're garbage, Jennifer. You're garbage. Here she is on Bill Maher. All the people who could be on this multi-million dollar show on HBO, and, and Bill Maher gives voice 
to this despicable human being, Jennifer Rubin. Look how they trash the Democratic Party. They trash the Democratic Party, not because it's they're not doing enough about climate change, not because they're not doing enough for the 99 percent. They don't talk about this infrastructure bill. They don't talk about Bernie's reconciliation bill. What Bill, who's becoming a pretty despicable human being, he's pretty despicable. He's a liar. What he's doing is he doesn't want to talk about the issue. So he he falls into that typical faux Democrat default position. The Democrats aren't strong enough. They're weak. Listen to this horseshit. But it is kind of sad. He thought that the Republicans would go back. Am I right? He really did. You could see it. You could hear it. He thought the Republicans would go back to being the Everett Dirksen Republican or something. Mitch McConnell would stop being an asshole and they'd have a a drink together. We'd work together. They thought they were Jennifer Rubin Republicans. I left because there were no Jennifer Rubin Republicans, that these people are all crazed. And Mitch McConnell is has just decided he would rather drive the car into a brick wall, set off a economic catastrophe, then do his job, which is to pay for what he already spent under the last president. So this notion that we need well. to chat with them or that we need a filibuster because a filibuster is going to, you see, promote dialogue and compromise and debate is nonsense. And, you know, God bless him. You know, uh, many of the never Trumpers like myself who came over, we look at this and we say, must we do everything? These guys do not know how to use power. They don't know how to whip their own people. How they have not had hearings on this already. I mean, Ben, it's just take try to a coup to try to take over the government to, to disqualify real voting it's a thousand times more consequential than Benghazi yes they had that yes. right away and never ending and these people they, how why is it already and they don't even get the language right these people are domestic terrorists domestic terrorists and instead they use all kinds of language to you know, rioters you know dissenters protesters protesters no just, they're traitors and they are They're criminals. And they don't. And the party is being run by a guy who told the criminals to go break in and yep. wreck the Capitol. They're treason enthusiasts. <laughs> treason enthusiasts. That joke was funny when the Simpsons first wrote it, what, 30 years ago? Right, where do you start with this? They are not Democrats. That's the first thing, okay? All they do is attack the Democrats for being weak. That's that's the first thing. We don't want Bill Maher. You're not you're not in our party, Bill. You're not a Democrat and you're not a lefty. You're a neoliberal. And Jennifer Rubin is a neoconservative. She has switched parties. If you want to take her into the Democrat, I'll take her vote, but not her opinion. She's still a neoconservative conservative. She's just not a Republican anymore. Well, you don't have to do fact checking if you have a sense of entitlement, if you have a couple of million dollars in the bank and you have an audience in front of you, which is the worst way to convey information. Bill Maher's fact checkers are the audience. If they applaud, I must be right. And that's why Bill is ignorant. He doesn't read. 
He just has a sense of entitlement. He has no idea what he's talking about. And Jennifer Rubin, as long as she can present herself as an intellectual, a lawyer, she doesn't have to read either. She doesn't have to be fact-based and she can be all over the map when she wants to. She can be for the uh, Iran nuclear deal. Uh, she's against it and then she's for it. She was against the the Paris Climate Accords. Now that she wants into the Democratic Party, she's for it. She's all over the map. She's all over the map. Let's uh, let's try to peel this back. Do we have time? Okay. They don't expect anybody to fact check them. They don't get fact checked. Let's see if we can fact check these willfully ignorant, pompous blowhards, which Bill Maher and Jennifer Rubin are, and they should go join the Republican Party. They are ignorant enough to find a home in the Republican Party. Bill Maher has not read a book in 30 years. Okay, let's start. How they have not had hearings on this already. I mean, Ben, it's just take try to a coup to try to take over the government to, to disqualify real voting. It's a thousand times more consequential than Benghazi. Yes. They had that yes. right away and never ending. Okay, this is not like a rerun. This didn't happen while the insurrection was going on. I'll address how ignorant Bill Maher is on the Democratic Party and the hearings in a second. So after Benghazi, if you'll remember, uh, Mitt Romney ran for president and he accused Barack Obama of not calling Benghazi a terrorist attack. And then during the debate, there was a big embarrassment when Candy Crowley corrected Mitt Romney and said, actually, in the Rose Garden, the next day, President Obama called Benghazi a terrorist attack. Mitt Romney is a an inveterate liar like Bill Maher. Bill Maher is a liar. Bill Maher lies for the richest one percent. He is a gangster for capitalism. He is a liar. Bill Maher is a liar. Nobody can be this stupid. And I'm going to show you some stuff in a few seconds. It is impossible that Bill Maher could be this stupid. It's in, Jennifer Rubin, maybe, but I know Bill Maher. He's not this stupid. He's just a liar trying to protect his money. And it's time for him to go off into the sunset and fuck his money. So... Uh, the first criticism that Jennifer Rubin leveled against the Democrats, and I am not an apologist for Nancy Pelosi, and I'm not an apologist for Chuck Schumer, but I will not take never Trumpers saying that Schumer and Pelosi are weak, that they're not standing up to Trump and the Republicans. That I won't accept because Schumer and Pelosi are very strong just not for the 99%. So if you want to criticize Schumer and and Pelosi, criticize them for not helping unions, Bill Maher, or the 99%, do not criticize Schumer and Pelosi for not standing up to Trump and the Republicans. That's a lie. And that makes you, that lie makes you look like you're a Democrat who cares by calling them weak. They're not weak. 
It serves your purpose and Jennifer Rubin's purpose to call the Democrats weak. Okay, so let's listen to Jennifer Rubin. They thought they were Jennifer Rubin Republicans. I left because there were no Jennifer Rubin Republicans, that these people are all crazed. You left because, as I said earlier, you got beaten up metaphorically by Trump supporters. You didn't like his manners. You agree with everything Donald Trump proposed and passed. You were for getting out of the Iran deal. You were for moving the Israeli embassy to Jerusalem. Suddenly you criticize that. Suddenly, suddenly now you're criticizing the Iran deal. Uh, if suddenly you're for the Iran deal when you no longer liked Trump, you were you were against the Iran deal when Obama was president. You were uh, for moving the uh, the embassy to Jerusalem in Israel. Now you're against it. You were against the Paris Accords when Trump pulled out of it. Suddenly you're for them. You're just a never Trumper. But you don't disagree with the 2017 tax cuts for the wealthy. You're a supply sider. You just don't like Trump. You don't like his manners. You find him embarrassing because he says what you're thinking. That's the only reason you don't like him. And you don't like his Twitter followers because they're just as malicious as you are. You are a Republican, Jennifer Rubin. You're just a coward. And you couldn't take the cruelty that you're part of. And you will go back to the Republican Party when they put a more pleasant patina on your hateful policies. You are arrogant and entitled. Get out of my party and get off HBO. And, you know, God bless him. You know, many of the never Trumpers like myself who came over, we look at this and we say, must we do everything? These guys do not know how to use power. They don't know how to whip their own people. Okay, okay. That is not only paternalistic, it's borderline racist when you consider, must I do everything for you? Do you have any idea how condescending that sounds to the Democratic Party, the Democratic leadership, which is made up of women and African-Americans. Do you have any idea how disgusting you sound? Must I do everything for? No, get the fuck out of my party, Jennifer Rubin. Get out of my party. Go be a Republican. You built this nest of vipers, Jennifer Rubin. Go live with them. We don't want you doing anything for us. Okay. Now, of course, she's not talking about how we have to pass the PRO Act and make it easier to unionize, get rid of these right-to-work states. She's not talking about dreamers. She's not talking about the Haitian immigrants. No, doesn't care about that. She doesn't care about the 99%, the plight of the LGBTQ, finding some kind of pathway towards peace with the Palestinians. All she cares about is that her beloved, newly found Democratic Party isn't strong enough standing up to Donald Trump. 
And these people, they, how, why is it already? And they don't even get the language right. These people are domestic terrorists. Domestic terrorists. And instead, they use all kinds of language to, you know, rioters, you know, dissenters. Protesters. Protesters. You arrogant asshole. You're, you're an inveterate liar with a sense of intellectual entitlement. You just feel you could say whatever you want and not do any fact checking like Mitt Romney during the debate when he accused Barack Obama of not calling Benghazi a terrorist attack, which he did. But inveterate liars just assume that nobody's going to fact check them. Well, I'm going to pull a candy crawly here. OK, OK. The day after, let me just repeat what this moron, Jennifer Rubin, said, and then I'm going to pull a candy crawly. And these people... How, why is it already? And they don't even get the language right. These people are domestic terrorists, domestic terrorists. And instead, they use all kinds of language to you know, rioters, you know, dissenters, protesters, protesters. Yes, we're so weak, the Democratic Party. How can you be that stupid, Jennifer Rubin? How could Bill Maher be that stupid? OK, the day after the day after. Benghazi, Donald, uh, 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 what's his name? Barack Obama called it a terrorist act. Okay, Jennifer Rubin, you ignoramus. The day after January 6th, this is what Nancy Pelosi had to say, you ignoramus. They were domestic terrorists. And they don't even get the language right. These people are domestic terrorists, domestic terrorists. They were domestic terrorists. Okay, that's the day after January 6th. Did they get the language right? Did they, did they get the language right? I believe you wanted uh, the Democrats, Nancy Pelosi, to call them do domestic terrorists. I believe uh, Nancy Pelosi said... They were domestic terrorists. Yeah, that was the day after January 6th. That would be January 7th, you ignoramus. You arrogant ignoramus. Okay. Nancy Pelosi, January 7th. Did she get the language right, Jennifer Rubin? Was she strong enough when she said this? He must go. He is a clear and present danger to the nation that we all love. Is that strong enough? Are we getting the language right, Jennifer Rubin? And these people, they, how, why is it already? And they don't even get the language right. These people are domestic terrorists, domestic terrorists. And instead, they use all kinds of language to you know, rioters, you know, dissenters, protesters. protesters. How could you be that stupid? How can nobody correct you? Multi-million dollar show and nobody corrects these ignoramuses. OK, that was Nancy Pelosi. What about Chuck Schumer the day after the day after January 6th? Was the language strong enough, Jennifer Rubin? Let me be clear. These were rioters, insurrectionists, goons, thugs, domestic terrorists. And they don't even get the language right. These people are domestic terrorists, domestic terrorists. So you you think just by 
calling yourself a Democrat that entitles you to start beating up on Democrats again, Jennifer Rubin. We don't want you. It's not a big tent. Or it's, it's not big enough for you, Jennifer Rubin. Get the fuck out of the Democratic Party. You're poison. You're toxic. And I pity your family. I can only imagine the lies you tell your family, you arrogant prick. Is, is the language strong enough? He must go. He is a clear and present danger to the nation that we all love. That's the day after January 6th. Is that, is that language strong enough? Okay, how about Jerry Nadler? Remember him? He's the chairman. I, th- I don't know if he's still the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. He was chairman of the House Judiciary Committee for the first impeachment of Donald Trump, January 7th. Here's what Jerry Nadler said. Tell me if he got the language right. He must not remain in power one moment longer. That's the day after. Is that strong enough for you? Or Jim Clyburn, he is third in command in the Democratic leadership. Is this strong enough for you? This threat must be extinguished immediately. This president must be impeached and convicted, and he must be prevented from ever attempting to seize power again. Is that strong enough for you on January 7th? Jim Clyburn calling for his impeachment? Or what about this, Chuck Schumer? All right, everybody, good morning, good afternoon. Now, what happened at the U.S. Capitol yesterday was an insurrection against the United States incited by President Trump. An insurrection. The day after it happened, Jennifer Rubin, they called it an insurrection and they called for his impeachment. I think they got the language just right. Let me be clear. These were rioters, insurrectionists, goons, thugs, domestic terrorists. Yeah. Pretty amazing that you can get away with that those lies. And it is, coming from you, they're stupid lies. You have such a sense of entitlement because you're a lawyer and you write for the Washington Post. You feel that you don't have to read, that you don't have to think, that you can just parrot right-wing talking points or Bill Maher's talking points about how the Democrats have no spine. And you get away with it. You get away with it. You're an ignorant liar, Jennifer Rubin. Must we do everything? These guys do not know how to use power. Must we do everything? These guys don't know how to use power. They don't know how to use power. Well, you know how to abuse power. You have power. You're a columnist for The Washington Post. You should be fired for your lies. You should be fired immediately for your lies. You misuse your power, Jennifer Rubin. The Democrats know how to use power. Unfortunately, they're not using it for the 99%, but they know how to use power. Here's what Chuck Schumer said the day after, the day after what he called the insurrection. Do you like that language, the insurrection? 
the day after. This is what Chuck Schumer said. He may have only 13 days left as president, but yesterday demonstrated that each and every one of those days is a threat to democracy so long as he is in power. The quickest and most effective way to remove this president from office would be for the vice president to immediately invoke the 25th Amendment. The vice president can invoke the 25th Amendment today, and if the cabinet votes, he's gone. They should do it now. See, that's use of power, calling on Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment and get rid of Donald Trump. But of course, you and Bill Maher think that that's toothless. You, you want instant gratification. You want strength, right? You don't realize the honey trap that Chuck Schumer was building. He to immediately launch into an impeachment without invoking the 25th Amendment lets Mike Pence off, right? So it was pretty smart what comes next. Oh, and Speaker Pelosi and I tried to call the vice president this morning to tell him to do this. We, they kept us on hold for 25 minutes and then said the vice president wouldn't come on the phone. See how it works? You exhaust every option. The day after the insurrection, you call Mike Pence up and say, invoke the 25th Amendment. You let the American people know that you reached across the aisle and, and tried to be reasonable with Mike Pence. And he kept you on hold for nearly a half an hour. Right? That, that's not the proper use of power, Jennifer Rubin? Okay? Must we do everything? These guys do not know how to use power. You ignorant prick. You ignorant prick. You arrogant, ignorant prick. Okay, so after he used the power, after Chuck Schumer used the power of being a Senate minority leader and calling Mike Pence and not getting his call returned, in the same speech, he went on to use his power. So, so if the vice president and the cabinet won't invoke the 25th Congress, Congress should come back in session immediately and impeach the president. Get him out of office. Hmm. So he called less than 24 hours after January 6th. Chuck Schumer was calling it an insurrection, domestic terrorism, and he was calling for the impeachment of of Donald Trump. We don't need we don't need a lengthy debate. The president's abuse of power, his incitement of a mob against a duly elected representative representative body of the United States is a manifestly impeachable offense. If there ever was an impeachable offense, what the president did was it. How's that language, Jennifer? The fish stinks from the head, plain and simple. And so I believe the president is dangerous and should not hold office one day longer. Pretty clear to me, Jennifer Rubin. A lot of spine there. A lot of spine. Don't know what you're, don't know how you get away with these lies. If you don't think he won't spend his days out of office promoting conspiracies, stoking grievances, 
and doing more of the same, you're kidding yourselves. If you think he won't promote the idea of him running again four years from now to motivate his supporters, you're kidding yourselves. And in impeachment, there's a charge that allows the Congress to say he can never run for office again. That should be invoked as well. See, he said he wanted to impeach Donald Trump and make sure that he could never run for office again, that there would be a resolution in the impeachment, Jennifer Rubin, making it so Donald Trump could never run for elective office. See, I think that's a pretty good use of power, isn't it? He must go. He is a clear and present danger to the nation that we all love. So you're just a liar. You're an ignorant, entitled liar, Jennifer Rubin. You should be fired from The Washington Post and you should be kicked out of the Democratic Party. And you shouldn't be allowed on HBO. You're not entitled to an audience when there are more deserving people who could use a couple of million people watching them. So let's turn to Bill Maher, who has paid millions and millions of dollars to be stupid. How they have not had hearings on this already. I mean, Ben, it's just take try to a coup to try to take over the government to, to disqualify real voting. It's a thousand times more consequential than Benghazi. Yes. They had that yes. right away and never ending. Yes, the Democrats. How how could they not have hearings, Bill? How can the Democrats not have had hearings? And the audience applauds. That's your fact checker. The audience. The, the uh, the Democrats, there was they, they try to overthrow our our capital and and destroy our democratic processes. And, and the Democrats are so weak. How have they not had hearings? How, yeah. How have they not had hearings? Tonight, for the second time in just over a year, the House delivering Donald Trump a historic rebuke, now making him the first president ever to be impeached twice. Yeah. How have they not had hearings, Bill? They immediately began impeachment proceedings against Donald Trump. I think those are hearings about January 6th. I'm pretty sure those are hearings about January 6th. They impeached him for inciting an insurrection. How they have not had hearings on this already. I mean, Ben, it's just take try to a coup to try to take over the government to, to disqualify real voting. It's a thousand times more consequential than Benghazi. Yes. They had that yes. right away and never ending. Syphilis must be rotting your brain. It's unbelievable. OK, how have they not had hearings? Well, not only did they impeach him for a second time because of the insurrection. As you know, he got off. The Republicans wouldn't convict. But that wasn't good enough for Pelosi. Right now, I'm announcing that there will be a select committee, as there was at the time of 9-11. A select See, she, she's still after the Republicans for January 6th. How they have not had hearings on this already? We do everything. These guys do not know how to use power. They don't know how to use power. They impeached. They impeached Donald Trump a second time because of the insurrection. And now 
they're holding hearings that Bill doesn't seem to know about. Bill doesn't seem to know about the commission that Nancy Pelosi wanted. You know, they wanted that bipartisan commission, but the Republicans wouldn't participate in it. So she set up her own select committee to investigate January 6th. It's still she's holding hearings right now, Bill. Well, there was quite a bit of drama on Capitol Hill today. It started with Speaker Nancy Pelosi blocking two Republicans from a special committee to investigate the deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol. Yeah, Nancy Pelosi, Jennifer Rubin. She blocked Jim Jordan and Banks from serving on her committee. In a bold move, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi rejected two of the five Republicans on the panel, Ohio's Jim Jordan and Indiana's Jim Banks. The speaker suggested the two staunch allies of the former president who voted against certifying the election would jeopardize the integrity of the investigation. That seems pretty tough to me, Jennifer Rubin and Bill. Not allowing Jim Jordan and Jim Banks to sit on your select committee that seems pretty, pretty powerful. And what unfolded may have put the January 6th congressional probe in jeopardy. Yeah, that was July 22nd, 2021, Bill. I guess you can't remember something that happened, what, two months ago? The hearings, you, you forgot about the impeachment for the insurrection, but they already started these hearings. The select committee on the Capitol Hill riots they gave emotional testimony in the first hearing of the select committee investigating the events of that day. Yeah, that was uh, July 27th, Bill. The hearing started on July 27th. How they have not had hearings on this already. Uh, how could you be paid so much money and be so ignorant? How could you be that stupid? Tonight, the investigation of the January 6th insurrection focusing on the former president's men. The House Select Committee, in a, quote, aggressive phase, sending their first round of subpoenas to four top Trump advisors. Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, former White House social media director, Dan Scavino, top Pentagon aide, Cash Patel, and former advisor, Steve Bannon. That was uh, the night before this show, Thursday night. The committee sent out subpoenas to Steve Bannon, Bill. But, you know, you can't be bothered to read or talk about that. You rather just push the narrative that, you know, the Democrats are weak and say things like. How they have not had hearings on this already. You know, people actually get their news from Bill Maher. And, and this is dangerous because he's stupid and he's breeding more stupid people. July 27th, Bill, is uh, when they had their first hearings. And, you know, maybe instead of having Jennifer Rubin on your show, it would have been nice to crack a book and read about those hearings that you don't know about. They were kind of interesting, kind of sad and depressing. They gave emotional testimony in the first hearing of the select committee investigating the events of that day. Yeah. Uh, remember Michael, F oh, you wouldn't know. You're ignorant. You don't read Bill Maher. You wouldn't know about Michael Fanone. What makes the struggle harder and more painful is to know so many of my fellow citizens, including so many of the people I put my life at risk to defend, are downplaying or outright denying what happened. I feel like I went to hell and back to protect them and the people in this room. 
but too many are now telling me that hell doesn't exist or that hell actually wasn't that bad. The indifference shown to my colleagues is disgraceful. Yeah, and the Bill Maher show is disgraceful for you to say. How they have not had hearings on this already. How could you be that ignorant? How could you be that ignorant? How could you have Jennifer Rubin on your show, who's equally ignorant, and not have Capitol Police Officer Michael Fanone on your show instead? You ignore the testimony. You build the narrative by trivializing the Democrats and portraying them as weak. You build the narrative that there's no replacement for Donald Trump and that the the, that the political will isn't there to take on the Republicans for being deniers of January 6th. Did you have Harry Dunn on your show? The African-American officer, Harry Dunn, who was repeatedly called the N-word? You know, he'd be a good guest, Bill, Harry Dunn, because a lot of people say that the insurrection wasn't racially motivated, but there were Confederate flags and there were like two white people and there were reports of the N-word, uh, black people being called the N-word. This is something you should be talking about on your show. You should have Harry Dunn on your show. Give us, uh, uh, this committee and those who are watching, uh, how you felt defending the Capitol on that day, uh, being called at and seeing the symbols uh, of the Confederacy uh, going through the Capitol at the same time? <clears throat> yes, sir. Thank you for your question. Um, to be frank, while the attack was happening, I didn't view it and I wasn't able to process it as a racial attack. Um, I was just trying to survive that day and get home. When I did have a moment to process it, I think that's in the rotunda where I became so emotional because I was able to process everything that happened. And it was just so overwhelming and it's so disheartening and disappointing that we live in a country with people like that, um, that attack you because of the color of your skin just to hurt you. Those, those words are weapons. Um, thankfully, at the moment, it didn't hinder me from doing my job. Um, but once I was able to process it, it hurt. It hurt just reading it now and just thinking about it, that people demonize you because of the color of your skin. When my blood is red, I'm an American citizen. I, I'm a police officer, I'm a peace officer. I'm here to, to defend this country, defend everybody in this building, not just the members, all the staff, guests, everybody. It just hurts that we have people in this country that result to that, regardless of your actions. And yeah, that was July 27th. That was two months ago. And you know what else really hurts? That we live in a country where two months later, the smartest man on television says... How they have not had hearings on this already? 
time to go, Bill. Time to go. It is. But it is kind of sad. Yeah, it's it's sad. All right. Uh, you're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. When we come back, we will be joined by everybody's favorite comedy writer, the great Dave Cyrus. It's time for our comedy virus. Let's all welcome Dave Cyrus. Welcome back. Joining us, I think he's on the road somewhere. Please welcome Emmy Award-winning comedy writer, the brilliant Dave Cyrus. Hi, Dave Cyrus. I, I well, said hello, Emmy Award-winning. Yeah, we we have uh, have a bone to pick with you. Do we? Yes. Where are you? I'm in L.A. at the moment. Okay, working on Don't a movie or a television show. But you owe me an apology. You owe my audience an apology because we do corrections on this show. I just spent an hour correcting that ignoramus Jennifer Rubin and Bill Maher, who has just become a willful ignoramus. It's unbelievable. And uh, but I correct myself, unlike Bill Maher. I will correct myself. So I misspoke. I apologize. I said on Tuesday's show that Dave Cyrus won an Emmy for his work on Saturday Night Live. I yes. apologize. I was wrong. Yes, you were. I did not win an Emmy. SNL won an Emmy. But I lost because I was only nominated for writing. Writers mm -hmm. don't win an Emmy when the show they wrote won an Emmy because they have almost nothing to do with it. However, there is a category for writing, which every year goes to Jen Oliver. So I and deservedly so because deservedly. I'm sorry. I was very happy to correct you when you congratulated me. Yes, but here's where I feel uh, betrayed by you. Mm -hmm. I saw the next day that you won an Emmy. You didn't call me to tell me you didn't win an Emmy. You just let it sit there. And I went on my show to congratulate you. You didn't you didn't warn me. You, you didn't put out a, an alert cautioning me not to congratulate you for winning an Emmy. Well, it's the same reason why, you know, when I get a blood test, I'll just say to someone, hey, man, just got my STD test, dot, 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 and then not reply to them for a few days just because I want to see what they assume. And uh, but I mean, also, I wanted to I mean, I wanted to have a little bit of time believing that you thought I won an Emmy you know, yeah. just to see what you did. Do you yourself. know how hard I worked at trying to be happy for you? Yeah, no, the fact that you congratulated me, I knew was the hardest thing you could have done. And yet, and yet. The fact that I meet, the fact that I told you I didn't win an Emmy was, I, I believe, the most charitable thing I've ever done. Well, it, it really was. It did as make nice me happy. It did make me happy. But wait a second. Now you're on, you're probably making another movie with Judd Apatow or Universal. Maybe. 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 You never know 
who you're dealing with. And yet I can't get an acting job from you, even though I went on my show and said I was happy for you. You know, well, to be fair, I also can't get an acting job in my movies. So it's not like I have that much power to do so. But I did a pretty good acting job last week. No, you are a good actor. But I just want you to understand that a lot of the projects I work in, we, we do something that's called ageism, where we say right off the bat, we, I have to be the oldest person involved in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it just I think, you know, we live in a world of a lot of discrimination where a lot of people are racist or sexist or homophobic. And I think the best way to avoid that is to ban anyone over 60 from working there. You know what? 48. Anyone over 48. I agree with you. After watching Bill Maher. From working to avoid discrimination. After watching Bill Maher and Jennifer Rubin, it's time to put baby boomers on an ice floe. They are just reprehensible. They they hold court. They think their opinions count and they can just pull things out of their ass. See, I consider baby boomers the second greatest generation. Because they were the ones, their, their parents were the greatest generation. And then they bravely continued to live despite knowing they'd never be as good as the people who were born in the 30s, who we all agree are the greatest people who ever lived. Um, no, I mean, just it's look, we, this is the world we live in and they're still in charge. <laughs> and the one thing I always say, though, I do disagree with this attitude that I hear a lot about when the baby boomers die, everything's going to be great. And it's like everyone always says that during their generation. I mean, the baby boomers were once hippies who thought that who were the epitome of people who thought we're the new future. When everyone else dies, everything's going to be fine. And it's just like with Generation Z people. I love the fact that someday their kids are going to say the world is on fire and it's 100 percent your fault. You dropped the ball. You wanted you decided that the world would, would suck. Every generation ends up selling out and ends yeah. up being a disappointment. Not just selling out. I remember discovering uh that Chuck Manson lived in Haight-Ashbury and he was a hippie. So he was, he was also a racist hippie. So like, there's definitely, well, hang on for one second. So I moved, I moved to San Francisco and I, this was after the hippies, but I used to play comedy clubs in the Haight and I hung out in Berkeley. And one of the things I discovered in Northern California was there are a lot of racist uh, hawk Republican hippies. And when you got further north where the where they were, where they were growing pot, you'd go into a club and they were hippies with AK-47s protecting their their crop. Ted Nugent. Ted Nugent considered himself a hippie back then. Right. Like so yeah, there was a lot of problems. And there was a lot more racism and more and, and sexism among hippies than really anyone really acknowledges it was still gender roles were extremely rigid there was i you didn't really see any uh expansion into homo into anti-homophobia that you had in terms of the there was a lot of anti-racism despite there being racist too but you know the hippies if you spent a little time with a hippie you'd probably immediately be taken aback by how lecherous they are how misogynistic they could be and you know they were anti-racism in the same way that like my dad would be like, 
oh, I'm very, I'm not racist at all. I see a, a Latino guy. I immediately call him amigo. I tell him <laughs> I tip him well. You know, it's that kind of not being racist. It's a generational entitlement that the baby boomers have. They, people like Dennis Miller, they, you know, they grew their hair long and said, fuck. And people thought, oh, he must be a lefty. No, he just has long hair, says fuck, and says fuck you to poor people. Yeah, well, and it's funny. I remember people used to say that, oh, you just weren't paying attention to Dennis Miller. You just thought he was liberal because you want him to be. And then I look back at like his 1998 specials and he's attacking anti-abortion people. He's attacking Christian conservatives. No, that guy got afraid after 9-11 and turned to, and, and retreated to being a, a conservative, yeah. you know, it, because it's what you do when you're scared. Conservatism, I feel it, the basis of it is fear. Help me out here. Are there any lefty comedians who have television shows? I guess John Stewart, sort of lefty, except hates I, unions. I, I, well, I think it depends on what you consider that. I think. I think that it is unquestioning. It's unquestionable that John Oliver and Samantha B and Stephen yes. Colbert are on yes. the left, and they are. And I, I, those are all people who I personally do consider responsible. I, I wouldn't say Colbert is on the left. Yes, he is. I, I say he's left of center. center. Left of he's center. He's very yes. He's very left of center. He but is, not. He's look, not a lefty. Col Let's not act like the Colbert Report wasn't a very important, impressive lampooning of that era's conservatism. And just because he's in a more mainstream job, I don't think it means he's no longer someone who I would absolutely describe as on the left. Just because he doesn't want to burn down anything. Right. I, I don't want to. I like Stephen Colbert, I think. I love I think Stephen I Colbert think is a, a yeah. genius. I think he's one of the smartest comedians yes, he is. alive. But yes, he is. He's not a far left. He represents the typical Democrat, I think. Unfortunately. And Bill Maher. I agree. I do disagree with a lot of things he says, but he also represents a giant swath of people that we still want voting on our side. Joe Rogan represents a lot of people who still vote Democrat. Now, he didn't you know? vote for uh, he didn't vote for Biden. No, I know. But a lot of people who listen to Joe Rogan, I think, are still Democratic voters and conservative. voters. I don't think he's a Republican. I'm not saying, look, I'm not defending Joe Rogan or his audience. I'm saying I think people assume that it's a Republican audience, and I don't think it is so much. I think there are a lot of lefties still listening to him as well. It's just there is a giant chunk of the left side of the country that we don't necessarily agree with, but we still kind of need. And it's it's I don't like that, but it's the unfortunate truth. Yeah, the problem with our yeah. liberals. What, what Americans don't most Americans don't understand is you can't define yourself by your political party. They're coalitions. So you can have racist Southerners who were Democrats. That doesn't mean you're so you can call yourself a Democrat, but you're still a racist. People let themselves off the hook by calling themselves Democrats. There are plenty of racists in the Democratic yes, Party. There are a lot of anti-union people in the Democratic Party. Yeah. And that's a lot of, you know, Goldman Sachs, Lloyd Blankfein voted for Obama. Pretty despicable human being with a lot of blood yeah, on his yeah. hands. Well, that goes back to the idea that there's a lot of people who consider themselves, you know, the term socially liberal, 
fiscally conservative, which doesn't really make sense. It's a lazy kind of argument because you have to have some kind of money behind what you believe. You can't just say, don't pay taxes, but let gays get married. Yeah, it, it, that's a, that, that is a, a, an overly simplified version of what you could be politically. And the problem is, but people love it. People love that concept. That's why The Rock is going to be president the day he decides he feels like it. Because he could just go out there and say, I want to be Mitt Romney with your taxes, but Barack Obama with your rights, and people will fall over themselves. Not Matthew McConaughey. That terrifies me. Huh? Not Matthew McConaughey. Um, honestly, I think it works better if the person is, I think when it's someone like The Rock, who is probably going to run as a very moderate, very center Republican, that's what I am afraid of. That's the kind, I think liberals are way, way less likely to vote for a celebrity. than Republicans don't even understand why there are non-celebrity politicians to begin with. I think if you run middle People won't even care what the platform is. They'll just feel comfortable with a celebrity, it, especially if it's that niche, if it's the center right. So let me ask you about the Emmys. What are you watching? What 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 did the Emmys get right? What did they get right? Um, I, I'm a big crown person. I You know, the Emmys upset me a lot. There's a lot of things about it that really, I think, don't make like sense. Like not winning like, one. That's got to be tough. Well... To be honest, you know, we I think John Oliver is also a well-written show and I wouldn't I'm not going to sit here and say SNL clearly deserved to win over it. I will say that SNL for the best sketch show category, it was between us and only a black lady sketch show. And I'll be honest, I really wanted a black lady sketch show to win. And who won? Well, we did. SNL won. Oh, I see. Sketch show. But it was only against one show because, as you know, there were no other sketch shows on TV with humans or puppets all year that could have been nominated next to it. Yeah. We didn't and get nominated. Also, I could have been nominated for two cat. I could have been nominated for two things in the same category. Yes. Yeah. And would your life have changed if you won? No, no, I don't think so at all. I'd have an I'd have a statue of my grandmother's piano. I don't think it would have really affected my life that much. I mean, it'd be nice, but uh you know, it's also a show I only wrote for five episodes of the year and just kind of by luck, the episode I wrote for was one was the one that was submitted. Right. But if you're, if you're asking about the Emmys, here's what I, I, I will be honest, because I don't feel like I have to pander to the Emmys. A lot of things did upset me. Ted Lasso was a good show. I don't think it deserves 55 percent of the nominations for acting. Like, it, I didn't think it deserved half of all the nominations for a supporting actor and actress. I think it's a fun show, but there's a lot of good shows that deserve representation. I don't think Cobra Kai should be nominated for an Emmy for Best Comedy. That's, come on, it's a nice show, but that sounds like they're just nominating it based on what's getting the most attention. Whereas a show like Doom Patrol and other, you know, really, really smart shows should have had some acknowledgement so that people would might know these exist. It seemed like we were just rewarding whoever already had the best publicity. And what did it tell you? It was the most diverse award show. Nomination. Ever. Yes. But what does that well, tell you? The problem is the Emmys of an organization, they can control who gets, who presents and who gets nominations. And they did. And they said, let's make it very diverse. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. They, that is something that should, in and of itself, absolutely be, be you know, supported. They were trying to make it more diverse. But with the one thing they can't do is force people to vote a certain way. 
So the thing is, they did everything they could literally do in their power to make it more diverse, but were once again uh, thwarted by the fact that these are 20,000 people, They're, a lot of them, the vast majority white, a lot of them elderly, who no matter what, no matter how much diversity you pack into the show, you can't make them vote for, you know, it's, it, it, and it's happened so many times. It happened with Michael K. Williams. It happened with Chadwick Boseman. Everyone just was sure they were going to win, and then they didn't. And the thing is, I don't blame the Emmys for that. It's not, that's not the Emmys' fault at all. It is the fault of the population of the country, and specifically in this case, the population of people who are professional writers, comedians, uh, you know, actors, people in the industry. The Emmys as an organization tried, but they can't put a gun to your head and say, hey, stop only voting for white people. The criticism is the entire industry. Why did they change the way it it used to be? There would be like a blue ribbon committee who were given the the shows. So if you were a if you were part of a, a, a drama, you would be asked to vote on best drama, not 20,000 people. Did they change the the rules? I I can't answer that as an expert. I just know that having read about how it works, it's that everyone in the academy who is a writer gets to vote for best writer, and everyone who does anything gets to vote for best show. So you just have a lot of people who are, you know, maybe out of touch and Maybe, you know, and that's the thing. It's it, you can't it's when it's that many thousands of people. How do you really control anything? And we keep getting reminded that when left to their own devices, a lot of people will still vote for the standards. will vote for the, the white guy. will vote for the person they know rather than, you know. Now, uh, not to not to brag, but I have an ace award. Mm-hmm. Do they still do those? No. Okay. I, I, th- I have an American Cable Ace Award. Mm-hmm. And one day... That, which is very impressive. You beat out Sid Caesar for that. One day, HBO and Showtime were winning all these Emmys, and the people said, it's ridiculous to have a Cable Award when we're competing with NBC and CBS. And the Ace went the way of the Dodo Bird. So are the Emmys in danger of ending up like the Ace Award? My opinion is different than I think the objective and one. Should, and I've, should they? And I've never been, a, I've never watched award shows. I've never really been into them. I'm just not a fan. So it doesn't bother me if they went away. I mean, let's face it. Every Academy Award has had a litany of, of embarrassments. You know, the Grammys for years, their hip hop and heavy metal categories were a joke. Uh, and, you know, the Emmy, the Oscars and the Emmys, they all have things to, to answer for. I would not cry if they didn't, if they no longer became these, you know, I think it's fine to award people, but the fact that it's such a big event just doesn't really bother me if it doesn't exist anymore. I think people just don't really care that much. That, that, that's showing how much they've gone down, right? Yeah, well, this is from the Nielsen's. By the way, the Nielsen's have lost their standing. Well, that's because TV is 
declining. Yeah, but it used to be. Don't have any effect on streaming. It used to be that the Nielsen's determined whether or not a show got picked up or canceled. For decades, people were saying that the Nielsen's were culturally biased. They weren't accurately measuring the tastes mm-hmm. of Americans. And now they've lost their certification. They no longer yes, determine. That's not, but not because of that reason. The Nielsen's are losing the certification. The award shows are going down because lots and lots of people are no longer buying cable, plain and simple. That's yeah, but, but the Nielsen's were presenting facts to ad buyers. They were saying, this is where your audience is. Then about five years ago, they discovered Nielsen doesn't know what they're talking about. And they've lost. No, absolutely not. So I mean, you, Nielsen's many times have proven that. I mean, Nielsen's didn't even account for college students. And yet, they, and yet we've had cultural shifts dictated and based on the Nielsen's. And it was all a lie. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, Our you know, culture, this, this culture that we celebrate is built on a lie. Do you know in radio, this is true, they have what are called arbitrons and people have to fill out their books and they tell the arbitron people what they listen to. Well, one day they once. had, huh? I did that once. Yeah. I was part of that once. Well, people lie. They say they listen to NPR and not top 40. They, they rather come across as being smarter. They lie on their books. So they decided to try people meters instead. And the people meters told a completely different story that nobody was listening to NPR and that more people were listening to Spanish language stations than English language stations. But, but the ad buyers didn't like that story. And the station owners didn't like the story that more people were listening to Spanish language radio stations than English speaking language stations. So what, they got rid of the people meters. Yeah. And now the only thing you can hear on on radio is Spanish language, uh, gospel or uh, right wing radio. Right. And by the way, can I just say one quick thing as a cop, as a, as a side thing about all. Did I mention this about all the radio people who have been dying of covid? Well, like the right wing radio people that people yeah. have been saying it's like uncanny how many. And I, I explained to someone it's not as weird as you think when you think about the factors involved. Think about who specifically is doing right wing anti-vaccine radio. Number one, it's a lot more people than you think because they're all local. So there's like thousands of them. Number two, they're usually men who are like over 50 or 60. Number three, every single one of them is obese. Right. Number four, once again, these are daily radio people. And I can't prove this, but in my experience, they're all doing cocaine. You put those together, you get a lot of people who are not going to survive Wait, wait, they're doing cocaine and they're fat? What is their coke cut with? Butter? That's what I'm saying. Uh, That's one of my oldest jokes, by the way. Good for you. That's fun. That's 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 from 19... Bubbity, bubbity, bub. That is a good joke. What's their coke cut? I think that when you think about the kind of person who does right-wing radio... It's a confluence of factors that are going to make them not survive COVID, which, of course, they're making a point of not avoiding. Right. They're murderers. I, I, I am yes. dialing it back on the anti-vaxxers, the peop- not the anti-vaxxers, the people who quietly don't get vaccinated. I, w- I, I would not condemn those people. If but, you, but, hey, if those people don't, need, don't feel the need to throw a punch at a barista who tells them to show their vax card, I don't feel hatred towards anyone who is afraid. 
You know, there's a big difference between just being scared and being a liar and telling other people not to do it. Now, there is something going on in my neighborhood. I see this if I go at the if I go to the bodega after nine o'clock, you have to wear a mask. And there is this phenomenon of a muscular white guy in his mid-20s, well-built, buying a six-pack, no mask, with a beautiful young woman wearing a mask. And my first inclination is to walk up to that guy and say, wear a mask. But I think in, he'll kill me, Right. Well, they're, he's they're asking me, he's, he's looking, he's got this yeah. beautiful he's an woman. He's alpha male yeah. who, who thinks this is his big chance to prove what a tough man he is. In front of you his know, hot girlfriend. He probably heard Joe Rogan say that if you're a real man and your penis works, you shouldn't wear a mask anywhere. Right. Uh, by the way, just a quick, I was at a show last night, a, a music show as a memorial for a friend of mine who, who passed away of um, uh, a cold that we who knows what, you know, uh, I won't get into that. And they asked someone to check vaccine cards. And they asked a girl I'm friends with who was about four foot nine to check vaccine cards. So I volunteer, I volunteered to be the one to do it because simply because I broke my foot a few days ago and I wanted an excuse to sit the whole time. Right. And uh, it was really, it was, yeah, I, I was, I was really excited about the possibility that I might have to fight someone who doesn't want to show a vaccine card. And only, only one person didn't have a card. And said that she was was, was honest. She said, you know, she was like her t- the timing was off, but you could just tell this person just was afraid. Did you and let you know, her in? What? No, she went home. She apologized and went home. I said I was sorry. I wish we, you know, I'm sorry. You know, you have to, but those are the rules. And it was it was. But all you very didn't nice. use your power to maybe. Don't you want power? Well, you know, I do. You know me, I'm power mad. So why didn't you use your power? That's why I loved it. I did. I got to turn her away. But that's how I got to feel power. But don't you want to be transactional? I do, to be honest. Uh, I swear to God, I do. Uh, Let me ask you a question. 100%. Just my fantasy is that she was absolutely gorgeous. She was actually. Okay. To be honest. If if, If you said to me, here's your choice, David, you could, this beautiful woman... You can go home and have sex with her, or you could beat the guy up who wasn't wearing a mask. On my life, I would choose beating the guy up in front of his girlfriend. Well, you're an angry man. I swear to you, that is something I would remember for the rest of my life. And then spitting in his face, and then there is something, and then doing a Johnny sack and peeing on him. Remember Johnny Sack yeah. peed on that guy? I remember. Yes, yes, I do. In The Sopranos. I can barely pee at a baseball game with guys standing <laughs> next to me. This Johnny Sack beats the shit out of a guy. And then, to me, beating a guy up and not pissing on him afterwards, you didn't beat him up. It's like not having dessert. But seriously, I'm being serious. If I, meal. if I could, th- those are my choices. No question, beating up the... 25-year-old kid without the mask. Yeah, well, I do have a lot of hatred for That'd be the last thing I would consider on my deathbed. Forget my kids. I would just drift off 
I would shuffle off this mortal coil thinking of that 26-year-old that I beat the shit out of. Yeah, why not? I mean, I get it. You are filled with rage, and who deserves it more than someone who tries to get physical with someone because they want them to be responsible? No, no. Anytime you see someone who, like, throws a punch at, like, a, a hostess because they say to, like, wear a mask or have a vaccine card, that is someone who... We, I'm glad this happened because they could have gone their whole lives as this bad a person and no one would have noticed. Yeah. Even if he were wearing, even if he were wearing a mask, if he was wearing a mask, I'd still want to beat him (laughs) to a pulp. (laughs) (laughs) He was really good looking. I've seen three so far, just really good looking guys without masks on. Well, I think there's something to the kind of person who dedicates their, their life to their looks. What do you mean? Somehow Some people are born that very way. Very good at understanding medicine. <laughs> Don't you think some of these guys are just born beautiful? They are, but believe me, there's a lot of effort, a lot of primping that goes into that type of guy. And uh, I think it definitely dovetails with, uh, dis- with replacing scientific information with conspiracies you can understand. Right. Hey, R. Kelly. R. Kelly is going to prison for probably the rest of his life. And you know what? I'll say this. I had a lot of people say, yeah, this is the same thing about Cosby. Cosby's lawyers did not get him out because they're good lawyers. They miraculously got a mistake that was made years earlier that they were able to exploit. It's not something that is just, you can just introduce to any case. That's why, you know, people thought Harvey Weinstein was going to come out. No, Cosby had a very odd, very unique set of circumstances that let him get out. And by the way, after serving two thirds of a sentence, R. Kelly is going to die in jail. It looks like unless he manages to live to be a very long time. And you know, there's nothing wrong with sitting here and, and patting ourselves on the back once in a while and saying, Hey, we got one. A guy who was able to do this for years, stop being able to do this when society changed just a little and started saying, we can't let people do this anymore. This is ridiculous. And we still have a place. We still live in a place where the powerful get to do horrible things. Even they were like, guys, guys, you can at least put R. Kelly in jail. He's making the, he's making all the other pedophiles look bad. Right. Right. It's very it's very sad. It reminds me of how people keep their mouths shut and mouths shut in so many ways just to get along. I don't want to make trouble. You know, I could speak up. A lot of these guys, I'm talking about R. Kelly's, but a lot of powerful men commit misdemeanors and taunt other people to tell them, you know, tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. I've noticed that. In, in some work situations where p- powerful men get off on seeing what kind of liberties they can take with you, even though it's, you know, not even on the margins of what's legal. It's, it's legal, but it's wrong. Power is a crazy thing that human beings probably shouldn't have. Every, like I've always said, it's not about the people, like with the police. I've always said, it's not about the people who become police. It's about the job itself who makes people a certain way. And power corrupts people. And Iceland is being run by, Iceland is being run by women. They have a new parliament. 
and there's a majority of women in their parliament. And a lot of people think that Iceland recovered very quickly from the financial crisis because of female bankers being brought in. So I often wonder, there's Mayor Osorio. It's good to see. Do, do you know Mayor Osorio from? I don't, I'm sorry. He is, he's my hero. He really is. And we want to raise money for him today. We have to get All right, good. We have to raise money. It's pronounced Delano, California, correct, Mayor? Uh, however you want to say it, uh, Delano, Delano. Just as long as I can pronounce it wrong. That's my trademark. Is Was it founded by the Roosevelts? I already asked the, him that question last not time. Not no. no. Dave They're Cyrus. A wealthy family. I feel like it's possible. Maybe. 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 Yeah. Dave Cyrus, when do you come back to New York? Uh, not exactly sure. A couple weeks. Probably. Okay. Dave Cyrus. Follow Dave Cyrus on Twitter at Dave Cyrus. Oh. Yeah, S like virus. That's right. We'll talk to you next week. It's been a while. Congratulations um, on not winning an Emmy. Yeah, no, same to you. <laughs> I wasn't nominated. Yeah, so it doesn't thing. hurt the way it hurts you. It's, one is no better than the other. I just want you to know that had you won, I would have forgiven you. Thank you. All right. Dave Cyrus, everybody. Let us now go to D Delano. Delano, California, where Mayor Brian Osorio is standing by. And I just want to raise money for you. You're running for Congress. We had you on, I guess, like four months ago. You blew me away. And let's give out your let's give out your web address so people can send you money. It is osarioforcongress.com O-S-O-R-I-O for congress.com and I'll keep running that graphic till uh, you leave. How much money do you need? And when when is when is the quarter over? Yeah, uh, so ambitiously I would say we would need uh, 11,000 by Thursday. Uh, Thursday is the deadline. Okay. I don't ask people for much. And Mayor Osorio is endorsed by Howie Klein. That's all you need to know. So go to osorioforcongress.com right now. And let's send this gentleman to Congress. We, we, we need him in Congress. You are truly, uh, you're something else. How old are you? I'm uh, currently 25. You're 25 years old. And you, as I recall, you not only have a degree from Berkeley, you also have a master's degree from USC in public policy. I have a good memory, Mr. Feldman, yes. Yeah. And you're the mayor of Delano, California. I have a, a, a little disorder when it comes to pronunciation. So you'll have to forgive me. Osorioforcongress.com. Let's give him money. Let's give him money. What would you spend the money on? What does the money get spent on? So at this point, uh, what we want to do is focus on hiring organizers 
given that we're going to be a grassroots campaign and people, a campaign that's not going to take any corporate money or money specifically from the oil and gas industry, we want to take an organizer model approach where we are investing it directly into community members here who have been organizing in their respective cities. And with the many cities in this district considered one of the largest in the country in terms of span, um, we, we really need the help in getting organizers in each county uh, and hopefully, you know, uh, within the, the larger cities in each county. So that's uh, where the money would be going to, um, as well as, you know, just hiring a, a professional staff. Right now we have a few folks on the team who are really, really putting in a lot of good work, um, but also, uh, you know, we, we definitely would appreciate some full-time staff to to run the campaign. Yeah. Some people think, well, why should I give to a candidate? Why don't I give to a charity? Because there shouldn't be charity in America. There should be a strong federal government that disperses and dispenses this cash, not philanthropists who are hoarding, not paying their fair share of taxes and and really using their foundations to launder money and live off it. This is one of the biggest scams going. If we had better people serving in Washington, D.C., you wouldn't be compelled to give to charity. These all if we had a better government, we wouldn't need charities. And so many of these charities are ripoffs. So let's make this a better government. Go to asadioforcongress.com. Give Mayor Asadio money, $5, $500. It's money better spent. We need people like Mayor Asadio in Washington, D.C. When you give money to like the Red Cross, it just goes into six-figure salaries and more fundraisers that they, ho- that they hold at Mar-a-Lago. This money that you give to, to Mayor Osadio is going to be spent on getting him elected. You're representing California's 25th Congressional District if you win. Who currently occupies California's 21st Congressional District? Yeah, um, so uh, I'm running in California's uh, 21st Congressional District. And it's currently occupied by Republican David Valadeo, um, who voted with Trump 98% of the time, uh, but marketed himself as a bipartisan legislator. Uh, most recently this year, so he was ousted in 2018, uh, but he got elected in 2020 again by 1,500 votes. So he, he um, lost to a Democrat. Yes, he lost to a Democrat in 2018 by 800 votes, and then won a seat by 1,500 votes. Um, who was the Democrat? T.J. Cox. Who? T.J. Cox. And is he running again? He is not a candidate in this race. He uh, converted his uh, his uh, campaign committee into a voter registration pack. And is he supporting you? Uh, there is uh, no no comment uh, or support being um, publicly stated right now. So, you know, I'm uh, I'm running as the only progressive candidate right. The primary is right around the corner, believe it or not. It's June 7th, 2022. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, that is the, in a blink of an eye, and you need money to get the message out. Go to asadioforcongress.com. Your story is what makes us all proud to live in this country. Where are your parents from? Yeah, my, my parents are from Mexico. 
they immigrated to this country as uh, as teenagers, and uh, you know I was uh, I was born in Orange County, uh, California, before moving to Delano, roughly at the age of seven. Right, and Donald Trump wanted to revoke birthright citizenship. You, you're a, a beneficiary of what is it, the Twelfth Amendment, where they said anybody born in the United States is automatically a citizen, correct? Yeah, no, it's, uh, uh, you know, when he was running, there was a lot of focus on immigrants, and uh, it was an unfortunate focus of discrimination and hate uh, and xenophobia. Um, And within that, he did throw comments like, you know, revoking citizenship from children of immigrants, which uh, I am. Uh, And it was was fairly terrible, but I was more concerned about, you know, people like my parents and immigrants across the Central Valley and uh, Delano. So all this stuff is a little confusing to Americans who aren't paying attention. A dreamer, had your parents brought you to the country when you were six months old, you would be what they call a dreamer, correct? Yes. Um, If I, you know, if I was going to school or having a job and had no criminal history, then I would be eligible to, you know, apply for uh, Deferred Action Childhood Arrival, uh, which is DACA. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we get the term uh, dreamer or DACA recipients, um, young people in this country who, who want a, a pathway to citizenship. Now, there are about a hundred, there, not a hundred, there are hundreds of thousands of dreamers who, to his credit, President Obama tried to pass legislation back in 2011, 2012 to create a pathway to citizenship for the children of undocumented Americans who were brought to this country when they were kids. It didn't get passed by Congress, so he signed an executive order that keeps getting challenged in the courts. This has been going on now for nine years. If you're a dreamer, you are being tortured by our court system. You're being told you're a person, but you're not a person. You're, and, and it's, I'm not joking around uh, about you being a person or not being a person. If you're not, if you're a dreamer and then, it's, then that's taken away from you, you don't get to participate in our country. You have to really go sort of underground. What, what happens to somebody when uh, they, they're told that there's no pathway to citizenship and they're made to feel illegal? What, what, what is that like for a human being? Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, thank you for highlighting um, that narrative because it's something that's often um, that's, you know, pushed aside because we focus so much on those who have some type of, uh, it's not necessarily legal status, but some type of protection. But there are those who don't even qualify for DACA, and that's where things get extremely tricky. And I think you are on the right path there, which is saying, like, you know, they have to work under the table, but live even under more fear that, you know, any day they go to work, uh, they aren't secure from any type of raids that might be happening uh, at their workplace uh, from Immigration Customs Enforcement. It's, um, it's definitely a tragedy. I know uh, a couple of days ago I was at an event uh, that was being held, held as a vigil 
uh, because of the parliamentarian's decision to not include immigration reform uh, in, the, in the package being discussed by Congress. And, uh, you know, the, the saying is like, you know, this, uh, this bill or immigration reform provides some, an economic stimulus uh, because of, you know, the amount of people who would be uh, participating even more so as citizens or as legal permanent residents. But what happens um, to those who uh, are just in limbo all the time? And DACA recipients, those without any type of documentation, is that they continue to feel uh, this psychological terror. You know, it's the psychological terror that happened, that was amplified during the Trump administration, but continues to this day when, you know, we still have agencies like ICE. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I would say the way that it's been described to me, it's just, it's really terrifying uh, having to live that life and going out to communities where uh, you, you just don't know if you're going to come back. And it's, it's an unfortunate reality and one that really results has in suicide. Do you mean? Results in suicide. I would say there's definitely a mental health aspect uh, in there that it has terrible consequences. Yeah, Result, it results in suicide. Uh, I know this for a fact. And uh, people say the hardest thing to do next to a death in the family is to move, right? First world problem in the United States. Oh, I'm moving. I, it's so, and people go, you know, it's the most traumatic experience you're going to have next to the loss of a loved one. So first world problems, we, we can't stomach the move. We like security because it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? You need shelter. Well, imagine coming to this country. It becomes your home. You know, we've all lived in shitholes and we're resilient. And we say, this is my home. Even if it's a, even, you know, I, I look at people living on the street and they make their home. They make a nest and that's their space. And that's where they feel secure and safe, even though they're out on the street. And it's human nature to want a nest and now you're saying to hundreds of thousands of young Americans, undocumented Americans, you don't have a nest. You, you're, you're just in a state of limbo. Some days, depending on how a judge rules, you have a pathway towards citizenship. Some days you don't. And there's no way home because where you, where you came from, it, it may not be safe for you to return home. You are literally in exile. It's torture. It's inhumane. It's disgusting. And it's got to stop. And to his credit, Joe Biden today issued an executive order to repair some questions that a judge had because the American people had not been consulted by Barack Obama, when he issued this executive order for the Dreamers, where does it stand? I mean, are we ever going to get are we ever going to get square with these hundreds of thousands of young Americans who we owe citizenship to and an apology? And uh, what do you see happening? One of the questions of, uh, of the decade or um, century, immigration has been a part of this country since its inception. I would say 
Um, I, I certainly hope so. I hope it does get addressed. I hope that it gets resolved, um, despite it being a very, very complicated process. It's not complicated. No, no, excuse me for one second. It's yeah. complicated because people like Bill Maher, you, you know, rather, ha you know, has a multi-million dollar show and he has these imbeciles like Jennifer Rubin on his show instead of talking about dreamers. It's, it's complicated because we don't talk about this. And then they make it a little complicated, so we lose interest in it. But it's not complicated. It's human decency. Yeah. It's, it's human. There's nothing complicated about this. Is there a shortage of Americans? Um, I would say uh, if you're referring to like agricultural labor, uh, I know that there was definitely a concern uh, during the Trump administration because of the threats and fear that he, he was invoking into these workers. Uh, there was definitely concern across the Central Valley about, you know, do we even have enough? And right now in Congress, that not just this year, but in uh, the, the previous year, there was there was talks about farm worker utilization or agricultural interests were trying to reach a compromise with Democrats because they want farm workers to continue working uh, here legally. And so I would say there's definitely been a seen shortage, a felt shortage, and there are powers at play that are trying to, you know, secure uh, uh, labor, especially immigrant labor. But, you know, uh, Republicans aren't really on board with the idea and it's going to be very tough to see uh, in the, the Senate. Right. Osaudioforcongress.com. Osaudioforcongress.com. O-S-O-R-I-O for Congress.com. I don't ask you for much. I'm telling you, he's endorsed by Howie Klein. Give him money. If you're thinking of being charitable and you want to help, this is the man to help. He'll go to Congress and write the laws that no charity can do. If you want to help your fellow citizens, if you want to help your fellow undocumented Americans, give money to Mayor Osorio by going to osorioforcongress.com. Give a dollar, give five dollars. If you want to change the world and make this country live up to its potential, you give money to this candidate. You can throw money at the Red Cross. It's not going to get anywhere until we rewrite these laws and take care of our dreamers. And that requires Mayor Osadio becoming a congressperson. That's how you make the world better in Washington, D.C. So if you're feeling charitable and you want to fix the world, go to osadioforcongress.com. Give them $5, $50, $500. If we don't start sending human beings to Congress, like Mayor Osorio, you can donate as much as you want to the Clinton Foundation and the Gates Foundation. Nothing's going to change until we start having human beings like Mayor Osorio in Congress. I don't ask you for much. Go to osorioforcongress.com. You'll feel better. It's the best investment you can make in your country. It's the best investment you can make in our future is by giving him money. And you need how much by the end of the month? Uh, ambitiously 11,000. Uh, that would put us in a good spot. 
Are you a millionaire? No, uh, no. Right now, like uh, you know, I'm, I'm a mayor of the city of Delano. I work in an environmental justice nonprofit um, because the, the part-time aspect of the mayor isn't enough, and I'm a candidate for Congress. So, uh, yeah, I I'm doing what what I can with what I have, and so no, I'm not nowhere near a millionaire. Yeah, I I knew the answer to that question. <laughs> Where do you stand on introducing legislation to abolish ICE? Um, in support, uh, I think an agency that terrorizes people at the border um, and will terrorize people out in communities, um, I, I, I would be in support of co-sponsoring legislation to abolish ICE. And, uh, you know, a story that really hits personal to me and kind of led this push to run for city council and to run for Congress uh, started in 2018 when um, Immigration Customs Enforcement came to Delano and they pursued two farm workers who had just dropped off one of their children at school in the very early hours of the day. And in this pursuit, it led to a fatal accident of those farm worker parents and from my legislators, um, specifically the current Congressman Valadeo, didn't speak up um, or condemn the actions of Immigration Customs Enforcement. And, you know, I was really enraged, you know, as you understand, Mr. Feldman, as a, a son of immigrants. Please call uh, me Mayor Feldman. <laughs> Mayor Feldman. Uh, Mayor <laughs> Feldman. Uh, Mr. I, Feldman is my father's. I want to be called Mayor. I'm sorry. <laughs> all good. All good. But, yeah, and this really, really frustrated me. And so um, I, I organized a march with 40 young people here in Delano asking for accountability and really showing solidarity to our predominantly immigrant community in Delano and across the valley. Um, but it's, uh, I, I've seen the, the terror and fear that ICE causes. And so I, uh, I would be in support of, uh, of making sure that this agency um, does not uh, exist for the sake of terrorizing. Yeah. Yeah. How are you on time? Can you spare five more minutes? Of course. Okay, I, I, I want to keep you around because Howie Klein is coming up at seven and oh, nice. he doesn't know you're on the show. And just if you could say hello to him, I'll score points with Howie and I'll look good in front of Howie. So uh, if you can just stick around for five more minutes to my listeners, com. Go to asaudioforcongress.com and give Mayor Brian Osorio $5, $50, $500. We need to get this before the end of the month. You will feel better. I promise you, you will, instead of going to McDonald's and eating a Big Mac, have some beans and rice and send $12 to Mayor Osorio. What is your relationship with the police and ICE in Delano? Um, you know, I, I would say uh, that's, a, that's a complicated question. Um, I know that uh, people weren't too happy when I had a Black Lives Matter sign as a candidate. As your what sign? A Black Lives Matter right. sign. Uh, you know, in a parade, I was very strong in what I was going to embody. Um, and so I know that that wasn't too nice. I know that some people were upset when I um, led efforts to um, discontinue funding for automatic license plate readers for the police because the technology would be shared with ICE. 
And so the, this, this technology would have been given to the police, but because of my concerns and by getting community to share those concerns, um, it did not move forward. And so, um, uh, yeah, as a, as, a, as a fellow council member said uh, last year, um, or the year before that, is that he notices a pattern with me when it comes to uh, the issue of, uh, of just blindly funding uh, police. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Why can't we talk about defunding the police without it devolving into a conversation about hatred for our police and people being soft on crime? Why can't you talk about defunding the police as a candidate without it blowing back in your face? Yeah, no, it's a very good question. I would say it really starts with the the education uh, around the issue, the awareness around the issue. Uh, you know, people just hear the slogan. Uh, people just think automatically that means less safety for us because we've come to define police as public safety, but not necessarily infrastructure, not necessarily mental health services unnecessarily youth opportunities as public safety. And so I think there has to be, um, you know, a foundation so that we can have productive conversations of what the real allocation of funding means towards these social services. Um, but I know in the city of Delano specifically, it's a very sensitive subject because of the gang violence that we have um, in the city. And so it's, a, it's, it's really unfortunate. Okay. Go to asadioforcongress.com. And give him money, give him five dollars, fifty dollars, give him five hundred dollars. We need. Uh, let me bring on Howie Klein. I'm trying to score points with Howie, Mayor. Hello, Howie Klein. Hey, how you doing? And hi, Brian, as well. I, I'm uh, very proud to have the mayor on, and uh, we met him through you. I just wanted to. Uh, have Howie say hello to you. Any questions you have for the mayor? Yes. Brian, does he hear me? Yes, he does. He gone? He's here. Yeah. Brian, I, I just sent you an email uh, asking you for, for a comment for a, a post I'm working on about the um, uh, the infrastructure bill, which looks like uh, Pelosi is going to try. You know, she didn't, she didn't uh, put it up today. She was supposed to. Uh, but she felt she didn't have the votes to do it uh, because progressives say they're not going to vote for it unless the entire uh, package comes up, meaning the hard infrastructure bill plus the human infrastructure bill, which is being blocked by conservatives. So um, so it's going to be voted on tomorrow. Uh, there are 48, at least 48 um, progressives who say they won't vote for it. So I sent you a note asking you what you would do if, if you were in Congress now. Okay, I will... I definitely look at your emails, Howie. I really appreciate you always trying to include me and give me some uh, some spotlights in your uh, in your in your blogs. So, you know, thank you for flagging that, and I'll I'll flag it for my team. So, hopefully, we can craft up a response. Okay. Great. Well, we'll wrap it up. Thank you, Mayor, for joining us. We've been talking with Mayor Brian Asadio. He's the mayor of Delano, California. Which, is it pronounced Delano or Delano? I always say Delano. Well, is it Delano? He's been very However kind. How, How is it? However you want, Howie. Uh, <laughs> go to osaudioforcongress.com. $5, $50, $500. 
I don't think you can give five thousand dollars. Thank you. No, but you can get twenty five hundred or twenty seven hundred, whatever it is. Yeah. Thank you, Mayor. It's an honor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to leave Bye. here. Thank you. Please come back. Oh dear. You know, as I get older, Howie, I am so turned on by people like Mayor Osorio. It it, it is, you know, there, it just makes me optimistic. So thank you for introducing me to him. Let's hope we get more like him uh, get that get elected and less like Kirsten Cinema uh, and Joe Manchin. And in fact, uh, you know, the, in the way it is in California, there's an open primary where everybody runs together. Uh, so the um, the incumbent is uh, a guy named David Valadeo. And so there are a bunch of, of far right Republican Trumpist types who are, are jumping into the primary as well. And then on the Democratic side, um, Brian is the only progressive running. And then there are some very well-known conservatives running. Uh, so it, it's a real sort of Wild West kind of uh, primary, and there's no telling what's going to happen. Right. I want to ask you a quick question about donating money. A lot of people don't like to donate to candidates. They've been turned off by the Democratic Party. A lot of people say, you know, why should I give to a candidate when people are starving in the streets. I should give to the people who are starving in the streets. Well, you should give to the people who are starving in the streets, but one of the reasons they're starving in the streets is you right. haven't been giving money to candidates like Brian Osadio. That's the problem. Is that a fair statement, Howie? I would say it is a fair statement. Um, you know, I mean, if people are turned off to the Democratic Party, they shouldn't give money to the Democratic Party. Uh, and, and I, I stand behind that very firmly. Don't give money to the DCCC. Don't give money to the DSCC. Don't give money to the DNC. That's a big waste of money. Give money directly to candidates who, who you have vetted or who uh, you trust that someone else has vetted. Uh, but that's really the way to go, is to give money to candidates who are going to address the problems that you're concerned about. And you're, if you're concerned about homeless people, Give money to people like Brian. Give money to people like Shervin, uh, who, who I know you know as well, yeah. and whose campaign is all about uh, helping the homeless, right. for example. But, but people have different, different things that they're interested in, and they should find candidates who are interested in the same thing. The idea that your money is better spent giving to a charity as opposed to a candidate like Mayor Osadio is misguided. Because charity, well, I, I wouldn't go that far, David. You know, because it's it, it, it's not misguided because charities also uh, need money. So you know, maybe if if your plan was to give, uh, you know, five hundred dollars in total, you might want to split it up in some way. Some to candidates, some to charities, and you know that way you do it. You do it both ways. You're thinking about the the immediate immediate help that that you'd like to see. Uh, people get as well as the long-term goal of solving the problems giving to giving to a charity is going to definitely help people today uh electing the right people to congress is going to help people over the long run yeah well we wouldn't need charities if people like warren buffett jeff bezos and bill gates paid their fair share of taxes instead of hiding their money overseas or in foundations that they borrowed have we had Stephanie Kelkin on the show? 
I blew it with Stephanie. What do you, you? Oh no! Don't tell me you you tried some comedy routine on her. Yes. Okay, never mind. Well, I mean, she was your other question. This was before she was Stephanie Kell. You you pitched uh, Stephanie to me like two years ago, and I wrote her what I thought was a funny email. <laughs> and okay. it didn't, uh, nothing. You think she'll remember? Or maybe I can get her to yeah. come on again. Yeah. Because, you know, the, say, the reason I just brought it up just now is because what you're saying, while it's true to a certain extent, it's 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 not the BN it's not the it's not the BNN goal. In other words, y- yes, we the the rich need to pay higher taxes. There's no question about that. So I'm not I'm not saying anything against that. I believe in it. I talk about it all the time on my blog. However, it's that's not the only way to solve these problems. You know, the other way is for the government to just spend the money. And Stephanie is the right person to talk to about. Yeah, let, let me let me do this. Let me. The mayor is being polite, but he has work to do. So let me thank the mayor. Oh, my God. I didn't realize that Brian was. Yeah, he's, he's being is uh, very sweet. Thank you, mayor. Come back. And we'll, 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 we'll you're, if your ears are burning, there's nothing wrong. We're just talking about how great you are. You really <laughs> uh, are great. You're, you're uh, great. Thank you. I appreciate the comments. When you're gone, we'll talk more about you. I promise. But you got to go. Thank you, All Mayor. Right. Okay. Bye, Ali. Bye. Bye, Brian. Asadioforcongress.com. Give him money. Right now. Give him money. Anyway. Uh, thank you, Howie. Lot to talk about, including the two infrastructure bills. Could you give us a a primer where it stands right now? Yes, I, I can. I'm happy to. But before you so, do that, tell us, remind people what is in the budget reconciliation bill that Bernie, instead of initially horse racing it, People should know what's in this thing or has the potential to be in and why this should be passed without question. Right. So so I, I, what I want to explain is, is the two bills because they're companion bills. And, and that's the key to this whole thing. So one of them is you can call the hard infrastructure bill. And that's the traditional stuff like fixing roads and bridges and tunnels and uh, ports that, that, and as you can imagine, that's hard. Um, And that was an all conservative bill. There were no, there were no progressives in the, uh, in the mix when they, when they came up with the bill. Uh, In fact, they, some, some progressives who have that as their field are very, very bent out of shape that this was strictly done by conservatives. They put it together. They call it bipartisan, and it is bipartisan. It's the most conservative Democrats in the Senate and the most conservative Republicans in the Senate. I mean, I shouldn't say the most conservative, but and, and conservative Republicans. So, so it's an all-conservative bill that, that's being called inaccurately bipartisan. So that's one bill. Uh, and that's about, I think, if I remember correctly, $1.2 trillion now. Very inadequate bill, does not address the problems that uh, progressives felt we needed to, to address. 
even in, in just in hard infrastructure, it doesn't address the problems. Then the other one was being called the soft infrastructure bill and the human in- infrastructure bill. And now it's just commonly referred to as the reconciliation bill. And that's what you were asking me about. And that includes um, lots of stuff from the Democratic um, agenda that is put that has been put together, even though some of the things don't really belong in, in the same bill. And the reason for that is because the Republicans can and will and have um, filibustered and filibuster everything except a reconciliate a reconciliation bill. They can't filibuster that. So what it means is all the Democrats need is 50 votes and they have there are 50 Democrats in the Senate. So they just need the 50 votes plus Kamala Harris. The problem is that means anyone in the Senate can kill the bill because all you need is one person not to vote for it and and it's dead. And we have two people who are willing to do that. One is Joe Manchin from West Virginia, who I don't think he's he's the real threat because Joe Manchin, you can negotiate with and you can say, hey, we'll do this for West Virginia. We'll give you an extra billion dollars and we'll take this out that you don't want in. So that can happen. The other person is Kirsten Cinema, who you can't negotiate with because she's out of her mind. She's literally insane. Uh, you said this would, before she was even elected. Yes. I, I knew her from when she was in the state legislature, and I saw her gradually go lose her mind. Uh, and now we're dealing with someone who's a crazy person who I'm starting to get the feeling is going to flip uh, – over to the GOP, and she'll she'll be a uh, a Republican. But anyway, uh, that that that's just my my gut feeling that it, that'll happen eventually, maybe not for another year or so. Uh, her problem uh, with not just going to the GOP immediately is that um, she's bisexual, very openly and prominently, and tells everybody she knows several times that she's bisexual. So that's a problem with Republicans, and also she's pro-choice, being a woman. So, so, but those are other than those two things. She's a Republican all the way. Started out as a socialist, by the way, and and now she's, you know, wound up in this toilet. Right. In any case, I I, I strayed a little bit away from the bill. I want to go back to it, right. the reconciliation bill. So, it but, but before things, you do that, are there any other? What about Testor? Are there any other Democrats? No, they, they, no, they're all they're all fine. That's, you know, some of uh, many of them don't like certain things, but they're not going to uh, overturn the president's agenda just because of this or that. You know, and especially some of the conservative ones, like like Testa, from a very very conservative state, he's got to sort of you know seem to the people, the voters, and in, in, uh, the independent voters in Montana that he's you know doing his best to do what they like, whatever that is. Uh, the, the, the funny thing about this uh, bill is that independents, Democrats, and even large numbers of Republicans, and for some of the issues, majorities, other, other issues, pluralities, like the things that are in the bill. The other thing about this that I have to mention before we go into the, what's in the bill, and the thing that is making people like Manchin and Cinema upset is the pay-fors. So instead of embracing... Uh, what um, Stephanie Kelton is saying, which would be just, just you know, don't even worry, just, just pass it, uh, and then the, the money will come. Uh, what, what they're saying is it has to be paid for. Okay, fine, it has to be paid for. 
we're going to raise taxes on the rich. And they define the rich as an individual who's making over $400,000 a year. Not someone who has $400,000 a year, but a person whose whose income is 400. Now, if your income is 400 and $70,000, that doesn't suddenly mean they're taking all your money away. It means that you're going to pay slightly more, and I mean slightly more, very, very little they're going more. To tax what's, they're going to tax the $70,000, not the four hundred. Very, very mildly. Right. And but let me just make, let's make that there clear. All just, taxes, like 3% here and 3.8% there. Uh, I have a post uh, this evening that explains the specifics of what they're are going to put taxes on. But there, there are like 20 different things that they're going to raise taxes on. But what people need to know, because this is the opposite of what the Republicans are saying, is all of these taxes are, are on the rich, are on rich people. And all of the polling shows that Americans, both Democrats and independents and, and some large portion of Republicans feel that they want to see the rich pay their fair share, their fair share. So, and so the, the richer you are, so now we're talking about billionaires, the more you're going to have to pay. And it's far less than it should be. I mean, far less. I mean, I'm looking at this thing and I'm saying, yes, they're adding a 3% surtax onto something for the very, very, very wealthy. I think it was for over $10 million. And I'm, you know, I'm blowing a gasket. Why not 30%? Why 3%? Why not? Why not 70 percent? So it's, you know, the Republicans and conservative Democrats are making a big fuss about how they're going to tax everybody. It's not true. And they have ads that are running already, especially ads that are being targeted to conservative Democrats in swing districts where they're making it sound. And these are false ads. They're making it sound like these these people want to see socialism by taxing all of our money. That's and that's what they're saying. And I, I've watched the ads. I, I, uh, if you go to my post again, uh, that's coming out tonight, you'll see it. You'll see some of the ads that the, I, I think I have one up um, that they're running against Jared Golden in, in Maine, a conservative who's who's against this stuff anyway. God only knows how he's going to vote. Uh, and they're, they're claiming that, you know, he's uh, a socialist that's going along with Pelosi's socialist agenda to force socialism on everybody. Right. And we all have to pay higher taxes. And it's not true. It's it's, it's false. So, uh, although, you know, when these Republicans say it, it sounds true because it is true for them because they're all rich. The ones who are saying this stuff are wealthy and they are going to have to pay more taxes. But you know what? They should be paying more taxes and they were paying more taxes um, under under Bush and under Reagan. uh, And when and when Trump first came into office. They were paying more than they're go- than they're going to have to pay when this thing passes. This thing doesn't even catch up to what we had before Trump. That's how mm-hmm. much Trump lowered the taxes on the very rich. He didn't lower the taxes on the rest of us. He lowered the taxes on the very rich tremendously. This is going to bump it up a bit. Okay, so now let me get to so that's that's one of the reasons why people like Mansion and Cinema are so opposed to this and in the house, Josh Gottheimer, they, their career are be, is being, their careers are being underwritten by the very wealthy. So now let's get uh, to what's in that bill. So two of the things, well, two of the things that are very, very popular come under the rubric of expanding uh, Medicare. So how do you expand Medicare? So there are a few, there are a couple of ways. So one is you, you make it so that Medicare can, uh, can, 
uh, negotiate with uh, with the pharmaceutical companies so that Americans aren't getting ripped off. This last weekend, uh, Roland was nice enough to go down to Mexico for me to buy uh, a, a drug I use um, for my neuropathy, and it would it would cost me ten thousand dollars a month to use this drug, ten thousand a month with insurance in in the United States, thanks to George uh, Bush's uh, you know fake um, Medicare uh, Part D. Yeah. Uh, but but Roland w- w- went down there and it cost a tenth, one tenth. Uh, you know, they're made in the same factory. There's no difference. They're exactly the same. They're just ripping off Americans because we don't we 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 are not our government doesn't negotiate with the drug makers. And they can rip us off. They can't do it in any other country. We're the only country where that happens. So that's in this bill. And, you know, you've got all these. The, the, the I, people, I thought that was taken out of the bill. It hasn't been taken out. They're trying to get it out, uh, but it's in there now. It's still in there. Okay. And, you know, th- this is something that the Democrats campaigned on. And they have to deliver this. Um, other other things, uh, other ways to expand Medicare would include lowering the uh, the age of uh, eligibility from 65 to 60. So that's not the same as obviously as Medicare for all, but it, 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 it expands it, it, you know, who's eligible. It, it doesn't mean if you're 30 or 40, you're eligible, but it means if you're 60, you're eligible. And that's gonna, that, you know, as you get older, generally speaking, you get, you get sicker and you need this kind of help more. The other thing, that uh, that's a very, very big and important part of this is dental, vision, and he- hearing care. Now, I want to just go back for a minute to when to the original Social Security when 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 Social Security was suggested the first time, they were also talking about um, health care. And it, it, from the very beginning, there was no thing, uh, we're only going to do these things and we're not going to do dental, for example. That was part of it. But conservatives, meaning basically almost all the Republicans, plus the conservative Democrats, they didn't want people to be able to be treated for dental and vision and, and hearing. So it didn't make it into the bill. And when it finally passed, after decades and decades and decades of them not letting it pass, it finally passed after a Democratic landslide. Um, and then, uh, but, but that part didn't, didn't pass. And, and, and Democrats have been trying to get this passed since then, since 1960, I think it was passed in 1965 without that. And they've been trying to add it on ever since. And, you know, you remember when Alan Grayson introduced it a few years ago and he nearly got it passed, but the Republicans and the conservative Democrats managed to block it. So why do they, why do they block these popular things? This is like immensely popular. I think uh, Bernie cited a, a statistic today that said 86% of Americans from all parties favor this thing. So why do they block it? They block it because they're afraid that their wealthy donors are going to have to pay for it. And that's the main thing. And they block it. The, the Southerners believe this or not. And I know not everyone believes it, but this is true. The Southerners don't want these things passed because they, they don't want to see black people being able to use them. If they could pass it just so white people could use it, it would pass. And this has been the case from, you know, when they started fighting about Social Security. Harvey J.K. talks about this all the time. Well, he's right. Yeah. 
racism. Yep, a big part of this thing. Now I can't remember which pill I took and which pill I didn't take. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it's <laughs> that's funny. Uh, well, I, I there's a glass of water out here, and I only pour uh, a full glass of water when I'm about to take some of my meds. Now I can't remember if I took uh, line three or line four. So the racism that says something about socialism. But when, when people like me say a rising tide lifts all boats and the only reason people storm the Capitol or, or vote for Trump is because they don't have enough money. No, no, no. We're, they're racist. They are racist. That That's separate from their... Wait a minute, wait a minute. Did you say something about people who vote for socialism are racist? No, no, that socialists think a rising tide lifts all boats and we say, don't worry about identity politics. Once everybody belongs to a union, once everybody is making money, all the racism will evaporate because racism is an outgrowth of income inequality. That's not true, is it? Well, it's not false. But you don't eradicate racism by improving the economy. Um, well, I don't know about that. I mean, that's not the classical way of looking at it, that the economy, that, that if you improve the economy, racism will, will disappear, then, and that won't happen. But, uh, you know, there's, as African-Americans and other minority groups get uh, get more they, they get wealthier there is less racism you know and and, and there, you know when you think about it where is racism most prevalent it's really among among poor white people rather than among uh more affluent white people mm, well you I, know what might disagree with me and, and there is an argument to be made that I'm, what i'm saying is wrong but but I but I see it in in my own neighborhood where there is no racism. That I mean maybe behind the curtains there's racism, but you don't see people uh, you know being overtly racist. Uh, and, and and it's because it's it's a it's, although it's a predominantly white neighborhood, there are black people who live here, there are Asian people who live here, there are Hispanic people that live live here, and you know I see when we interact as neighbors, you don't feel any kind of racism. Right. Right. Uh, and certainly not the kind that you would you would feel um, if you were in, in a in a you know well you're not going to get it in L.A. much anyway but you know you go down to Mississippi uh, did you ever I'm sure you must have seen this if you haven't it, it might be worth playing it uh, the 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 thing that uh, Christine Pelosi uh, did when she went down to Mississippi for the Bill Maher show did you ever see that no but she should have stayed there I would recommend. Oh, no, it wasn't Christine. Sorry, it was Alexand Alexandra Pelosi, the sister. So I would recommend that people go on, on uh, Google or, or on YouTube, I should say. Go to YouTube and, and um, look up Mississippi, Alexandra Pelosi, Bill Maher. Because she goes down there and she interviews people, you know, and 
And they they wind up. I mean, they don't say it the first moment she starts talking, but they eventually wind up that they 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 admit that they're racist. That you know that's the way they are, and you know they 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 don't apologize for it. It's just you know just the way we don't apologize for breathing air. They don't apologize for being racist. Right. In, in any case, it, it's a it's a worthwhile. Uh, I think it's, I, don't, I don't know eight or nine minute clip. It's really good. How did I, how I, did uh, Ms. Pelosi get the job with uh, the Bill Maher show? I guess it was a blind submission. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't. She I, must she be really be very, talented. She may be. I I don't know. Yeah. I I don't know. Maybe Bill Maher. Uh, reacted to her, her mother giving him a call. I have no idea. Mm. Maybe he just liked the last name. Mm. Yeah. Well, where does it stand? So where where does it stand right now? Pelosi said she was going to bring it to, but what did she she promised Godheimer? Yeah, but Godheimer and that crew uh, uh, that this, this, that if they would vote for. Um, pushing it along, which they, they did. She, she agreed that she would um, ha- have a date, a date so they were demanding, this was Kirsten Sinema's idea, by the way, that they would have a, a date certain vote on the hard infrastructure bill. Now, the, the problem here is that Kirsten and Manchin met with these House Democrats and said, okay, you guys demand a, dirt, a date certain, uh, and then we'll stop the, uh, the the reconciliation bill from being ready that date. And then the idea is then Pelosi would be put in a position where they would have to pass the hard infrastructure bill on the 27th, meaning today, and then they would never get a chance to have a, 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 um, a viable uh, um, reconciliation bill. In other words, They'd either kill it outright, or they would they would cut it into shred it into ribbons, so that it would be basically worthless. Okay. So that that's what the problem is. So it didn't Pelosi, but Pelosi has this thing. She's never lost a vote, and the the reason she never loses the vote is because she only puts things up that she knows she's got uh, she's got enough members to vote for. That's the hand. She knows she doesn't have enough members to vote for this, so she didn't put it up today. I don't know what she's what she thinks she's going to be able to do between uh, today and tomorrow, but she now says that she's going to put it up tomorrow. I can't believe she's going to do that because she's very proud of that record of never having lost a vote. Right. That's the Hastert rule, correct? No. Well, I thought the Pelosi rule. I thought the Hastert rule was never introduced. No, the Hastert rule is something different. That was that if um, you don't put up something unless you have a majority of your own caucus behind it. In other words, what could possibly but won't happen tomorrow is, say, Pramila Jayapal, the head of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, she says she's got 48 votes that won't vote for this thing without reconciliation coming along with it. So she said, we'll vote on both of those together or we won't vote on on the, uh, the conservative hard bill. So she says she's got 48 votes. That means Pelosi would need 45 Republicans to go along with, with this. And she doesn't have 45 Republicans. She has seven Republicans. That's it. Seven. Right. So and uh, McCarthy and Scalise are whipping against it. So, that, so if, if there are like, I don't know, even if there are 10 more Republicans that decide, you know, that they're going to go against uh, McCarthy and Scalise, she still doesn't have enough votes. So I don't think, and, and that, but anyway, 
this is this this is silly. I, I can't see how they're going to possibly pass this. Now, the one thing that gets me nervous, David, which you didn't ask me about when you could have, was the last time this happened was when uh, we were trying to pass uh, what came to be called Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. At that time, 70 progressives signed a letter saying they will not vote for it unless it includes uh, the public option. Then Joe, and we, and we needed reconciliation for that bill also in the Senate. So, and Joe Lieberman said, really? I'm not gonna vote for it if we do have the public option. And all they needed was him to not vote for it and, and it would die in the Senate. So it, didn't, so it came out of the Senate without uh, the public option and all 70 of the progressives voted for it, every one of them, even though they signed a letter saying they wouldn't. The only Democrats who voted against it, by the way, were 38 blue dogs and new Dems, 38 conservatives. Every one of them was then defeated, by the way, in their reelection bid, except um, except for one who's still in, in, in uh, Congress, Stephen Lynch in, in Massachusetts. But all of the others were either um, defeated that year or or two years hence, or and, and a couple it took a little bit longer for their their uh, dull um, constituents to realize what they had done. But they all eventually were defeated. Some were defeated in primaries, by the way, against uh, that were waged against them specifically for that reason by progressive Democrats. Right before before you well, go, it's a very very similar situation that we're facing tomorrow. Is Pelosi going to somehow get these these forty eight progressives to go along with with her plan? Is that going to happen now? Uh, and today, uh, Pramila uh, and Ilhan Omar and um, Katie Porter. So the three of them are the top ranking officers of the Progressive Caucus. Pramila is the chair. Uh, Katie is the uh, vice chair. And uh, Ilhan is the chief whip. So the three of them wrote a op-ed for CNN, which is very good and explains all the reasoning and all the all the reasons why they're not going to uh, they're not going to let this thing go without the reconciliation bill. It's very very well written, very very uh, it it works. It, it, everyone should read it. And if you can't find it, it'll be on my blog tomorrow morning. Um, so. You know, I saw immediately I saw comments from idiots saying, oh, they only got three people to sign it. No, it's not three random people. It's the three top officers of the caucus. What are you going to have? Everybody sign this letter? It's not a letter. It's, it's, it's right. an op-ed. Right. So it was written by those three. They're the three officers, and they, they're the ones who should sign it. And you've got these idiots in the, in the Beltway media saying, oh, the whole thing's going to fall apart now. They can only find three people to sign it. Just incredible how... how foolish these folks are and they, and they get paid for doing this right amazing howie klein is the founder and treasurer of the blue america pack and everybody should read him every day over at down with tyranny thank you and people how do people give to brian osadio and your candidates the easiest way is to just go to uh, uh what is it osario.com osario for, osario for congress yeah, you can do that. Or if you're going to my website, Down With Tyranny, uh, there's, on the very, very top, it says About. And if you hit About, uh, something pops up that says Donate. And then something else pops up that says House. And you boom, you hit House, and there you are. And you can donate to Brian and to the other candidates that we have generally coming uh, on, the, on the air. 
Is there anybody you want me to bring next week? Always. Well, I, I'd rather do you and then the candidate, because if you okay, bring... that's fine. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I'll I'll find somebody good. We have a we have a couple. Well, well we just had uh, we just had um, uh, Mike on um, from Orange County. He's I think he's he's our newest uh, guy. But I'll find somebody. Don't worry. Great. Thank you, Howie Klein. We'll talk to you next week. I hope. Yes, I do too. Thank Bye. you. And I meant Michael Stapleton. Thank you. Well, you are listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Coming up in a few seconds is David Cobb. He ran for president on the Green Party ticket back in 2004. He was also, I believe, Ralph Nader's campaign manager in Texas. That's right, in Texas. Yes. I, I want to remind everybody that it's the first Friday of the month. That means it's office hours and hours. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com if you would like. I got to move over here. There we go to fit into the shot. Uh, Office hours and hours, the first Friday of every month, 24 hours of office hours starting at 8 Eastern. Go to my website right now and sign up for office hours and hours. Let's go to Humboldt County, where a very happy-looking David Cobb is standing by. Hello, you look happy. Well, thank you. Uh, I am happy. Uh, it's raining here. Uh, That's and good. Of course, so, Northern California, uh, getting a little rain uh, has definitely put me in a good mood. Uh, and I was uh, just, uh, honestly, you caught me grinning because I didn't realize that uh, office hours and hours on the first Friday, like, what are you, like the Lou Gehrig of podcasters here? <laughs> like, you know, like some, <laughs> the Iron Man of podcasting? What the heck? Well, I, but I don't. I'm only there. I only hold the four, the first hour and the last hour, but then it's turned over to everybody else. And we do seminars and we have discussions and music and games. It's really a lot of fun. Nice. Yeah. You should nice. teach a class, do a seminar. You know, I'm, you know what? Actually, let me let, let's talk about this and, and we'll have a more interesting conversation yeah. for your guests right now. But but it, it would be interesting, wouldn't it? Because we we touch on things like community land trusts or worker owned cooperatives or, you know, Dishkama Humboldt. Uh, but it would be interesting to actually do uh, you know a deep dive on, on some of this stuff. Well, before we get to, to what sort of chat, you know, one of the things I do is I start office hours by provoking people like what do you want what should we be doing one of the things that was suggested was to buy some land to there's a lot of cheap land in the united states and buy a couple of acres and create a community a a branch davidian feldman compound where i brand people's inner thighs no, but uh, to, to yeah, the cre- problem about all that cheap land is you got to live next to like you know right wing a holes, right? But <laughs> but if it's a community, no, I, 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 I make it. Remember, I, I, I those are my relatives, right? So right. like I I can I can, uh, but, but look, uh, remember we're doing that in my community now. I'm not going to move out like uh, to the middle of nowhere. Uh, I already kind of live in the middle of nowhere. Look at a map and look at Eureka and find out like I'm, you know. How far are you from Eureka? Because I used to play Eureka all the time. As a comedian, yeah. 
I'm I'm at 14th and M in Eureka. Is that uh, so down, what, what downtown? Was the that you were playing Eureka, and what what, what venue were you at? There you well, it used to be an old bordello. If you give me the name of this Victorian hotel, it's got to still be standing because it's been protected. Was it in Eureka? Yeah, downtown. Are, uh, is it the Eagle House? Yes, the Eagle House. Is it, that I, is a brilliant? That is a beautiful facility. Yeah, they uh, used, so, and you know it's got that uh, that open air atrium uh, across three floors. Yes, I used. So to, were you doing stand up? Yeah, uh, I, I would. Yeah, I used to play there all the time. I saw ghosts there. It's haunted. and It is haunted. It is, in fact, haunted. It's the last place I ever smoked dope. I just remembered. I was. I don't know if you know who Greg Proops is. That name is not familiar to me. He's a great comedian. We played there in 1988. And you. I don't know if you know this about Eureka, but you can get some good pot up there. <laughs> well, I do know about that. Like, remember, it's not just Eureka, it's Humboldt, yes. right? Humboldt County has a well-earned reputation. And there's a great thing, actually, David, uh, I'll tell you, like, uh, uh, like we'll, we'll, uh, we'll take this sort of rabbit trail and I'll let you know, you know, that uh, uh, Humboldt County, of course, is well-known. Humboldt and Mendocino and Trinity County are called the Emerald Triangle. Right. Like it's where probably the most potent uh, cannabis uh, is grown in the continental United States. And it's because of a particular set of circumstances of soil, uh, weather conditions, the amount of rainfall. So really. And what happened was the story goes uh, that a Vietnam vet came back with some seeds and began to cultivate it with all those back to the lander hippies. Like, remember, I would, New I, York. This is, can, can I, I let, let me stop you for one second. Two things. Uh, I quit smoking dope. I remember I was listening to Black and Blue, the Stones album. The pot was so great. And I said, you know what? I have to quit pot, but I want to leave on a good note. I don't want to be one of those people. I'm being serious. I feel great. It's enough pot in my life. I'm done. I want to have a happy memory of pot. And that's the guy's honest truth. The other thing, and I was talking about this earlier with Dave Cyrus about hippies. One of the things I discovered about hippies was Charles Manson was a hippie not so left. And when I traveled through Northern California and played places like Eureka, I noticed that there were Vietnam vets who were hippies, who were not, didn't think too kindly of you if you trespassed on their land, that there is a right wing impulse among those hippies to not only protect the pot that they were growing, which at the time was illegal, but also they were preppers and survivalists. And there is on the spectrum, I saw, oh, you can go from being a back to the land, you know, uh, tofu eating, granola crunching lefty and a few steps and a couple of weapons more to the right. And you're a, you know, a militia member. Well, that's that, that's where I learned that. 
up in Eureka. It's still true. It's still true in Humboldt. Uh, and I think uh, I love that little uh, interlude. And, and like, I don't actually uh, uh, use cannabis uh, either. And I can tell you I did in my misspent youth. And I have occasionally just Actually, uh, my partner use. I joke with my partner. Uh, so you know, she uses uh, cannabis medicinally uh, for back pain uh, and for anxiety and mental health issues, and she knows exactly how to dose and what kind and da 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 for the different things. And she's a pothead, <laughs> right? Like she, so so she she will sometimes smoke uh, in order to take care of her back problems, or she's feeling a little anxiety. And sometimes she just wants to get high. Does right? pot help with bat the back? A, a good oh, friend. Oh yeah. That, well, that's the amazing thing, David. Like, and I'd have to bring her down to actually get her to tell you about it. Is there is a difference between indica and sativa? There's a difference between the different strains and the uh, various TH contents and so forth. And they've really got it down to a science around how to. And if you go to a dispensary and you get lucky enough to to get a uh, you know, a quality uh, person behind the counter, they'll literally ask you, oh, what are you looking for? A body high or you, you want to just giggle? Do you like, what do you want? And you can sort of navigate that process. And in large part, the degree of the specialty came about because those back to the lander hippies of uh, Humboldt, remember they left hate Ashbury, right? And went north, you know, uh, Wavy Gravy started, uh, the, the, the pig farm uh, uh, there in Mendocino, others came up to Humboldt. What was really interesting is the conditions were so perfect for cannabis here and it began to, uh, to be grown. And you had a lot of very smart uh, UC uh, Berkeley trained uh, biologists and chemists who were also hippies who went out and like, so they were, they began to cross pollinate and really experiment with how to, to grow potent marijuana. It's the reason that it's so good here. And here's the other thing I really want to lift up that uh, something interesting happened here, which were these hippies back to the landers. They, uh, yes, they, they, uh, you know, they were communards, right? They, like they were, they went up into the woods and, they didn't just grow pot. They were growing vegetables. They were they were you know uh, raising goats and and so forth. And something very interesting happened. Number one, they they ended up making a lot of money on their pot, and that generation built an entire infrastructure in Southern Humboldt, the Garberville Redwood area. Look it up. I'm not even joking about this. They built the Mateel Community Center. They built the uh, Healy Senior Center. They built Beginnings, which was a childcare facility. They built KMUD Community Radio Station. And by the way, on KMUD Community Radio Station, when pot was still legal and there was the CAMP program, stood for the Campaign Against Marijuana Planting. Literally, I'm not making this up, Feldman. There would be on KMUD the safety report. And you know what their safety report was? Attention, KMUD listeners. We have just gotten our first report of black helicopters heading over Chalk Ridge Mountain. Interrupt your programming. We've had our second and third reports. There is absolutely a, a helicopter in the area. They were using the radio station to actually out 
federal government authorities, or they would say, interrupt this broadcast to confirm that there are three black suburbans uh, going up Berry Hill. Uh, they've just been spotted, da da da. So literally the community was using its own resources to out the, uh, uh, the, the feds. And David Feldman, we're of a generation, right? When I moved, the first time I came here, I said, I'm only gonna come out for two weeks. It was, it was a lady uh, who wanted me to, to you know, we, we had met, uh, you know, doing organizing work. I was living in Texas, she was here. Believe it or not, I couldn't get a progressive hippie girl to move from Humboldt County to, to Texas. She said, you move here. I said, no, I can't. I've got a, a law practice. And, you know, I just managed Ralph Nader's uh, presidential campaign in Texas. And, you know, uh, da, da, da. She said, come, you know, and I said, but I'll come and visit. So I came out of here for uh, but two weeks. I said, I'm going to come for two weeks. I'm going to visit, but then I got to go home. So I came out of here for two weeks and true to my word, at the end of that two weeks, I went home just long enough to put my house on the market, shut down my law practice and get my ass back out here. Why? Because something special is happening here. And I saw, I remember to this day, it was back in uh, uh, 2003 when it happened, but I saw my culture reflected back to me on t-shirts and bumper stickers and I, I would overhear conversations at coffee shops that were like, you know, us talking like this. And I'm giving this long story to say, I still remember the bumper sticker and it read U.S. out of Humboldt County. Wow. U.S. out of Humboldt County. Like they literally thought about it the same way that U.S. out of Nicaragua, U.S. out of El Salvador, right? Like this is an invading force. My point is that those hippies did two things. One, they built an entire community infrastructure uh, themselves in order to meet their needs. And the second thing that happened that was pretty interesting is those ranchers and, uh, and hardcore right-wingers that, that made up the majority of Southern Humboldt, they earned the, the grudging respect because those back to the landers worked their butts off. They weren't just the lazy hippies that they had been told uh, through at the time, you know, right wing news. What they saw was these people are working hard. And so a kind of begrudging respect happened. But you know what the tipping point was, Feldman, when back to the lander daughters married rancher sons and began having grandkids. Because one of the things that I've known is boy, you may hate uh, your in-law, your, your son-in-law, or your daughter-in-law, but everybody loves their grandkid, right? right? Can we and do so, one thing? I have to take care of something. Let, let, let's sure. do a, a quick break. I wanna make sure Dr. Fraud can join us. We're talking oh. with David Cobb. When we come back, we will continue our conversation with David Cobb and be joined by, I hope, uh, Dr. Harriet Fraud. To be a billionaire Now you can make fun of me But I don't really care I have a plan To get there By and by As long as I stay healthy And I never die Fifteen bucks an hour Five days a week Fifty-two weeks a year And thirty-two thousand years I know it's a long time, honey 
David Feldman show. He's talking politics and comedy too. To tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. right now for the David Feldman show to get your ears on right buckle in real tight he's got a lot to say and he's coming your way Welcome, welcome back. I uh, we're talking with you didn't bring you didn't bring Doctor Fraud with you. I know some of the yes, I know. Hopefully, uh, she'll be with us. We're talking with David Cobb. What did you want to talk about before we got sidelined by marijuana? And I'm just curious. There is a there is a strain that cures back problems. Listen, it's uh, there. Uh, I, no, it doesn't cure back problems. Uh, there is a strain that is actually good for pain management. Uh, so, like, I want to be clear about that, right? Like, okay. uh, but but there absolutely is, and there is, and I, I'm not uh, I'm not skilled enough or knowledgeable enough uh, to talk about it. But I'd be willing to bet you a dollar to a donut, as we say where where I'm from, that if we ask the question in the chat, 
somebody who's watching uh, the David Feldman show could probably answer that for us. Um, because, you know, uh, and look, uh, uh, the, the, one of the interesting things, David, is that it's not just sort of a waltz down memory lane in the Eagle House, although that was fun. Um, and it's not just that there was a great history of what the Black to the Landers were doing about building community. But in addition to that, we are now working with cannabis farmers to help them create a cooperative cannabis economy. Some of them, we're helping them to explore how to run their farms as cooperative producer co-ops. And there's Dr. Fraud, uh, who will know that, like, one of the things that Dr. Fraud and other folks who are, like, really, you know, uh, throw down on cooperatives know that there are worker cooperatives, there are producer cooperatives, there are supply chain distribution cooperatives, there are merely consumer co-ops, right? Like there are many, many different types of co-ops. So at Cooperation Humboldt, we've literally created an entire program area called Worker-Owned Humboldt. And we're working in, and listen to this, Dr. Fraud, because I think we're the only, I know we're the only inc worker uh, uh, co-op uh, incubator that has this relationship in California, and we may be the only one in the country so far, we're actually paid consultants using federal dollars through the Small Business Development Center to help incubate worker-owned co-ops because the SBDC says that they're tasked with using federal money to help people build businesses, right? So they all think, Businesses are just the typical, I'm going to be an entrepreneur, I'll become a, a, an owner and I'll hire employees and exploit them and get rich, right? That's the model. We've gone to our SPDC person with good, hard data from the Democracy at Work uh, initiative, from Economic Update, from a whole host of good, solid science that shows worker-owned cooperatives last longer, pay their workers better, are more resilient, Etc. And so we've gotten an agreement. We are now paid consultants to help incubate worker-owned cooperative as just one more business. Hmm. Well, let me bring in Dr. Harriet Fraud. She is the host of Capitalism Hits Home, and it's not just in your head. And we'll do a brief overlap between David Cobb and Dr. Harriet Fraud. How are you doing tonight? Oh, you're muted. We have to unmute you. There we go. Yeah. I want to listen to David. It's always inspiring. Right. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Listen, I also I, I don't think I'm stepping on uh, Feldman's show, right? When I say that, uh, David, you, you're a bit of a matchmaker uh, because I'm going to, uh, 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 and hopefully Michelle Vassell and I, the Weot Tribal Administrator, will both. Uh, uh, come and join uh, Dr. Fraud on her podcast uh, sometime in October. So, yeah. you know, word's getting out. That's great. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. October 29th. And, and what are you going to talk about? Well, we're going to talk about how co-ops and that economic model affects mental health as opposed to a capitalist exploitative workplace and how that affects mental health. Yeah. That's important. It, it, I, we haven't talked about that in a while, Doctor Fraud, about mm -hmm. the way meant the way depression and uh, the system just makes you sick in the head. 
We were yeah. talking. We were talking. We're off all the time, and you give your best hours and are powerless. In a democracy, you have nothing to say except what to do, how to do it, when to do it, and they control that. When you have a union, you can you know exert a little bit of control, but not much on the conditions of your work. And it's enormously empowering to have to take over your workplace, to be in meetings where you decide. And in a good cooperative, those meetings are compulsive. You have to have a voice, which changes your life. I was thinking back to that today, uh, earlier, about a job I once had when I had small kids. I needed the job. I had an abusive boss. I needed the job. I needed the money. And the panic of losing the job and uh, how trapped by the complete and utter lack of freedom that I had. And yet the same people who are against unions talk about freedom. The, the Republicans yeah, well, they talk about their freedom not to wear a mask. They talk about their freedom not to be vaccinated. They talk about their freedom to abuse Haitians coming to the country. Right. You know, there's a lot of different freedoms. And some because freedom has been so denied in this country and people are angry, they just they attach their anger to all of these outrageous things. The Democrat, I don't know why the Democrats can't. Well, we don't have a Democratic Party that's pro-union. I don't know why the left can't change, you know, throw that back in the face of the right and say real free. You do. You both of you do. Real freedom is not having to work 14 hours a day at a job you can't stand. And not getting injured on the job the way 20% of Amazon workers do in those warehouses. And having a say and being important and being consulted. And, you know, it's it's all there. But Americans' idea of freedom does not include that. Let me you know, play. Dr. Fraud, I, Go. I wonder if anybody has written about the idea of how a, uh, alienation works in capitalism. I wonder if it, <laughs> it's a joke, right? Like it's 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 literally part of it, right? It's, right. It's part of it that you're alienated from the products of your labor, from the people walk, working alongside of you. And what happens, I think, is so many of Americans are so alienated that they don't bother to vote. They think it doesn't concern me. They don't bother to put on masks. They don't bother to do anything because they think this isn't me. This government isn't me and it isn't about me. And they give up. Right. You really see the alienation working in television. The, the baked into the system is complete and utter alienation from the final product, the shoe. That the, the if you're a writer in television, very, you know, even maybe if you're Aaron Sorkin or Larry David, but if you're working in movies or television, when you see the shoe at the end of the process, you are not allowed to claim creative ownership of it. Everything's a committee, everything's a group, if you're getting a little too much success, they make sure they push you down to, they say, to keep you humble. But it's really so that the studio or the network 
lays claim to the final product. You don't. And we see the byproduct of alienation, broken marriages, messed up kids, drug addiction. And messed up people. Yeah, messed up people from that. It's trauma. Like we're traumatized by this economic system. We really are. And also, I mean, we really, this economic system, 40, uh, 40 million people are facing eviction. And if you're evicted and on the street, you don't get wholesome food. You don't get clean air. You don't get clean water. You can't easily wash your hands, which is, of course, crucial. You can't get rest and restorative sleep. You're physically unsafe. And you don't get immediate medical attention. These are the bases. And if a society can't ensure them, it's failed. I mean, France is a capitalist system and has a lot wrong with it, but you can't evict anybody between, um, I think it's November and April because it's too cold. I mean, there's a sense here of utter ruthlessness. And there are these five basic needs of life, clean air, clean water, nutritious food, shelter with temperature regulation and intense heat or freezing cold, um, rest and restorative sleep. Those are five things without which there's no human life. And so talking about denying the bases of life is a failure. It means capitalism has failed if you do that like You're threatening 40 million people and a lot more who have kind of soft evictions because they don't get a notice. They're just harassed out of their house because they are smashing on the door at night because they tear down an adjoining wall because they won't fix anything, you know, that kind of thing. It's a failure. And Americans hopefully will begin to wake up, rub their eyes and look around and say, wait a minute. You have failed me, this system. Why don't I? I'm so glad to to hear you talk in such plain language and so compassionately about the, the failure, because if we understand that economy from the the attic greek just means the management of the household right like like we've been taught and trained to think that only the experts have the ability to understand economics right and one of the things that i think is important for us is to break it down it just means how do we produce and distribute the things that we need to survive really that's 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 the how things that can do it and also who gets the proceeds? And Correct. So who's in control of the decision making and who gets the profits associated with it? And this is the point that I, I really want to get to. The problem is that because capitalism starts from commodity production and that things are, are produced as commodities to be bought and paid for at a profit, like that's part of the just the basic definition, right? You know, it's not just lefties like us that say that. That's literally the definition that you'll find in any introduction to macroeconomics. I mean, Milton Friedman would agree, private production, uh, uh, private property, 
profit maximization, commodity production, labor is another commodity, market allocation. Five characteristics, it's actually quite simple to understand. But here's the problem. If you think about, well, wait a minute, we should be managing our household, our, and the world is actually our household in this global interconnected world, and that the things that people need to survive should be provided to them and to all of us, we should take care of each other. You know, the way that every major religion of the world understands, the way that every child is taught by their mama and daddy about like how to take care of each other, like on a very moral level, the problem is that the system is designed to exploit, extract, oppress, etc. The economic system is the problem, and we can it's the problem. And it is people can't live. The bases of life are commodified and denied. And the eviction crisis that's happening is the perfect example because all the basics are denied. You know, one in four families in the United States can't get enough healthy food. Even if they could buy some food, they're in a food desert and they can't afford to shop somewhere else and get you know, transit to get there. So that we are denying people the basis of life. And that is a failure. Denying your citizens the basis of life. And the basic economic question is who does the work, who gets the money? Who gets the proceeds, whether it's work in the household, who benefits and who's doing the work, or in the larger economy, looking at Amazon, with Bezos going into space for $500 million and a fifth of his warehouse workers being injured by the speed up. What? What is this? He, it's a failed state. It's it really a failed is. Right. It is. And it's not only that we've lost every war since World War II. Of course, that's part of the failure, too. But it's that we failed to provide the most basic necessities to our people. That's a failure. And people have to name it as such. And so when we go over the infrastructure bills, the soft infrastructure, the hard infrastructure, you wonder why the American people aren't marching on Washington peacefully, demanding that Manchin sign on to this, and it should be six trillion, ten trillion dollars. Where where is the outrage, as Bob Dole used to say? Is it because this country is so cruel that the American people are either broke or broken? They end up on the street. They disappear. You became a, you become a non-person when you live on the street. You're so terrified of living on the street that you're too exhausted to pay attention to your country being taken away from you. Plus, you're working several jobs or you're working exploitative conditions and trying to compensate all, for all the other failures. And it's so exhausting. Now, it is still possible people in the 1880s and 1870s organized and they were even more exploited than we are now and they unionized and struck. But also Americans haven't really woken up to the fact that just since 1970, we went from the most egalitarian nation in the developed world to the least 
of all the other nations. They're kind of in stupefied disbelief, particularly white people who had all the advantages in a racist society, that if you were white and in a family headed by male, a male, you could get a job and have often a family wage. And each generation could do better than the one before from 1820 to 1970s, mid 70s. And so they don't know what hit them. They just don't. And they don't get much help because we don't have a left and we don't have a left social media and a left press that's really vital and up there. So, and they're miseducated. You don't learn about it at school. And in fact, I would argue, David, that 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 recipe is why many of my cousins, who I know to be good human beings, are actually finding themselves supporting Donald Trump because Trump has a narrative to explain like what's wrong and how to fix it. And it's steeped in white supremacy. It's steeped in a proto-fascist worldview. But the there isn't an actual left, a genuine, like there is a right wing populism uh, that is emerging and is incredibly dangerous. It's, It's really why fascism is emerging in this country. And if there was an actual left party that actually had power that could say, no, no, there is a different way to organize society where your needs will get met and you will collectively be empowered. And it's actually a beautiful vision. The problem is that the Democratic Party is actually a party of neoliberalism. It is a part. Look, we have two capitalist parties, one extreme and the other less extreme, like the Democrats, but also Trump. And Bernie, excuse me, both captured people's rage at feeling cheated and denied. And Bernie got stabbed in the back by the Democrats. Or he could have won. When he was on Fox News, they loved him so much that they wouldn't let him be on again. Because the audience loved it. Because also Trump and Bernie expressed people's outrage at what's happened to their lives. And And by the way, can I tell you that uh, something incredibly uh, uh, disconcerting happened four days ago? Trump is more popular than Joe Biden. Uh, Polling data and and this, my friends, is incredibly dangerous. I'm no friend of Biden, right? Like I will, uh, I acknowledge him to be uh, a neoliberal. I think that he is making profound mistakes. But the fact that Joe Biden cannot speak a language that ordinary Americans can understand, and the fact that Joe Biden cannot outline a narrative that will make more people uh, attracted to him than Donald Trump is a huge, huge red flag. And I want to end with this, Dr. Fraud, that I've got cousins who voted for Trump who were also saying, you know, Bernie Sanders makes a lot of sense. I mean, if that, I would have voted for Bernie Sanders. Right. They would not vote for Hillary Clinton. They would have voted for Bernie. Of course not, because one of the things that neither, look, Trump doesn't have a vision. He's a demagogue. 
He's actually been worse for labor. He's immiserated people. He allowed corporate taxes to be slashed, but he expressed people's rage. And you have to express their rage because they have been robbed. And we don't have a press and a social media to point out who's robbing them. That's very important. And somebody like Manchin is accepted within the democratic fold. They're not in his state going door to door saying what he's doing to his people. They operate within a system that's gone. You could see it in the elections in France and Germany. Capitalism is in trouble. The center cannot hold. It's the left and the right, wherever you look. And they are centrists playing the old game but the old game doesn't work anymore with Schumer and Hillary and Pelosi. And if Biden doesn't deliver on these bills, he's dead in the water. He's ashamed of these bills as opposed to, he should be out on the road pushing Bernie's bill. If people he knew- He should be publicizing it everywhere and he should be having people go door to door on Bernie's bill. And in states like Arizona and West Virginia, he should be talking about how their leaders are shafting them. He should be on every radio station in Arizona, every radio station in West Virginia, talking up Bernie's bill, because if he, if he can't sell this, it's to, nobody knows what's in this bill. All they know is the horse race. If they if the American people knew what was in the bill, if they had the energy, they would rise up. He's Biden's well, that's a something the Democrats don't want. They're afraid of mass action. And so they want to stay within a safe game, but they, they've lost the game. That game is lost. Right. They don't want to be blamed. They, it reminds me it reminds me of everybody who works in television they want all the credit but they don't want the blame so they share a little they want to share just in case this thing is a failure then yeah but they they're afraid of the might of the the organized public and they don't want to go directly to them because they're not in control yeah. they want this controlled parlor game but that game is over yep and they won't admit it let me say goodbye to david cobb Bye, David Cobb. It's thank you. To- You're on Twitter. Yeah, thank you for. I just. I just. I, th- thank you uh, for allowing me to to share a little time uh, with Dr. Broad. I, I just. I, I'm so enamored of this conversation. Me too. And I will see you all next week. Well, you're you're free to to stick around. I was going to bring up something that I cut mm-hmm. out for Dr. Fraud. You talk about this all the time. I don't know if my listeners have ever seen, I believe it's called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. These are the, and I'm posting it for our Zoom room to see and our YouTube channel to see. This is a pyramid of basic necessities that a human being needs. And when you look at the needs, it is painfully apparent our needs are not being met by our society. They are not the, the, the baseline to be human. Food, water, warmth, and rest. Let's, let's just go through this. Does our 
country, does our government. Yeah, don't forget that because we need to be able to breathe. Too. Right. You've, you've talked about this, but it's 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 infuriating. The basic psychological needs, food, water, as you say, air, warmth. Well, we're getting too much warmth. And rest and restorative sleep, temperature regulation and rest and restorative sleep. Those are the basics. And we have failed people on all of them. Even the richest 1% are not getting restorative sleep, rest. Even people who are wealthy are not having their psychological needs met. No, because our psychological needs as a species, we're, so, we're social animals. They depend on a nurturing society. You know, if you walk around a ravaged city, you feel ravaged. Even if you yourself have a place to go home to. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Because you might, you have a nice home, but you do like to take a walk and not be afraid. Because physical safety is another need. Well, fear of your fear of your fellow citizen, but also when you walk by a homeless person and it's a reminder there, but for the grace of God, go I, you know, a few missteps some un unlucky rolls of the dice, I could be that person. It's a way, keeping the homeless on the street, they're kind of enforcers of the status quo. That's true. But also, you know, there is the danger factor. I read that 15,000 people have been killed by guns just since this January. Just this year, 2021, people are unsafe. Now, if you live in a safer neighborhood, the chances are that somebody just won't pick you off as you're sitting in a car or waiting at a bus stop. But that's there, too. The, the terror of people, people being afraid of one another. That's a terrible feeling. And that is very strongly felt. And it so, and we lash out at each other instead of lashing out vertically. That's right, because Americans have a high level of interpersonal violence, but very little <clears throat> organized political anger. In France, which is the only European country I really kind of know from having lived there, if they do something you don't like, the next thing you know, everybody's in the street. But they don't beat each other up like we do because their anger is seen as a social phenomenon that things aren't right here. We have to change them. Yeah, my, that is a very, very huge limitation in the United States that we don't see the social link. That's what our podcast, It's Not Just In Your Head, is about because therapists, if you're being evicted, who? what bad personal choices might you have made, right? Oh, my God. You know, my, my friend Kevin Rooney is a comedy writer. He has a place in Nice. He says the thing that's so refreshing in France, the people who are in charge remember the guillotine that Louis the 16th and Marie Antoinette had their head shaved in the back. He says in the back of the mind of every wealthy person in France is the threat of poor one too. I'm sorry. And every poor one too. Well, that's true. But uh, but looking at the 
the hierarchy, security and safety, intimate relationship and friends. You can't, according to the chart, you can't have intimate relationships and friends unless you feel safe and you have food, water, warmth, rest, intimate relationships. Which are based on trust and commitment because commitment is kind of a discipline with the self, a boundary to keep you safe. But people are afraid of that too. That's where this country is so sick because it's so transactional here. Everything is transactional. I think there, there is, I think a majority of Americans are in relationships for the wrong reasons. That's right. And they don't see them as permanent. They think, oh, I'll get a better one if this doesn't work out. They don't see, okay, I want to be in this connection until I can't stand it anymore. And I want to work because it's work to get to know yourself and someone else. They think they'll live happily ever after, even though the majority of marriages end. end. And the majority of relationships end. Because you need to say, I'm here with you. I'm going to try to trust you and myself here, which is risky. Jimmy Carter was a very problematic president. Wasn't a great president. One thing he- Not as bad as those who came after him. Not as bad, but, you know, Teddy Kennedy would have been better if Teddy Kennedy got the nomination Mm -hmm. in 1980 and not Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was not as leftist. He kind of steered- the Democratic Party towards the right. However, he was a scold, which I liked, and he gave that famous speech. And I was watching it the other night. He said to the American people, you have to conserve energy. And we have a serious crisis in this country where people are defining themselves by not what they do, but by what they own. Right. And I went, wow, what? I've never heard a president Say something like that. And the American people said, yeah, we're voting for Reagan by a landslide. We define ourselves by what we own, not what we do. Right. And also, we don't let people have a really radical message around here. So, yeah, yeah. We rejected the American people. He lost by a landslide to Reagan. The American people rejected that. Stuff with Iran because Reagan made a deal that the Iranians wouldn't release the prisoners until after the election so that Carter was seen as weak and couldn't keep us safe and all the rest. There were, of course, all of those things, too. The American people, though, they, they have their own agency. They liked what Reagan had to say, which was there's plenty of oil. You don't have to conserve. The government's the problem. Money is the answer. And it's okay to be a racist. Yes, he did. And he divided the Willie Horton thing. He got white people scared. That that was uh, Bush. That was Bush, right? He got people, he got the South on his side because he got them afraid of civil rights and so on. But also what he did was he very successfully turned FDR on his head. FDR stood for the big government that gave us everything that we needed at the time, that saved us from the depression, that 
um, gave us social security and unemployment insurance and overtime pay and the end to child labor and a lot of other things. And he successfully got Americans to see that the government was the problem, not the corporations that control the government. That right. was quite a trick. And people are, I, I saw a demonstration on television in the South where somebody said, get the government out of my Medicare. Right. Hello. You know, you, they vilified the government and Reagan started the slow reduction of corporate taxes because it isn't the corporations who are the problem. It's the government and people didn't put together, well, who's paying the way in this pay to play election system? He taxed Social Security. Reagan taxed. So we pay taxes. You, you, your parents, your grandparents, when Reagan became president, got Social Security and they, it was taxed. That's outrageous. The corporate tax rate and went way down in the inheritance tax and so on. Right. You know, the inheritance tax used to be starting at, um, what was it? Starting, I think, at $100,000. Now it's $11 million you can inherit without taxes. Right. Before you go, Dr. Harriet Frod, I want to uh, segue into our next guest. Uh, we're going to talk about the Adirondacks. Have you ever traveled around the Adirondacks? Yeah. Beautiful. You know, about 100 years ago, it became apparent to the people in evil New York City that <laughs> if we don't protect the Adirondacks, there'll be no water to take. But right. if, you, if you just keep mining the Adirondacks, the, it, the water table will be empty. There's going to be nothing to absorb all the water. Written into the New York State Constitution is the preservation of the Adirondacks. It's the only state constitution yeah. that protects, I don't know how many millions of acres. Yeah. And it was done more than a hundred years ago before we saw the oh, effects yeah. of climate change. Yeah, that's brilliant. Can you that's imagine brilliant. now a state writing into its constitution that a, a big swath of land must be protected from the mining interests and the logging interests it would be un, like, are you crazy? Yeah. Now they want to mine the oceans for precious yeah. metals. It's totally out of control. Makes you wonder about evolution. Uh, Dr. Harriet Frott is the host of Capitalism Hits Home, and it's not just in your head. We love you. It's an honor to have you here. We, we, just, scratched the, we just scratched the surface. Didn't even... And I'm on It's Not Just In Your Head with Max Golding and me. So anyway, thank you all. Thank you. This is such a wonderful time for me. Well, thank you. you know, uh, on behalf of my listeners, the show is great because of you and it has so as, as bernie would say it's not you it's me i'm kidding <laughs> when people say the show is great it's because of the guests and the oh. listeners i i mean that yeah. thank you so thank you thank till you. next week yes thank you so much dr harriet fraud 
Well, Professor Adnan Hussein, let's talk about climate change and what we were able to do about it more than 100 years ago. Please introduce Brad Edmondson. Okay, terrific. I'm so glad to be able to welcome Brad Edmondson to the show, David. Uh, he's a author, uh, Ithaca-based uh, journalist and author. Um, he's written a few other books, The Environmental Affairs in New York State, Ice Cream Social, and post-war Cornell, but we're here today to talk about his latest work, which is a really interesting study. It's called A Wild Idea, How the Environmental Movement Tamed the Adirondacks, and it's just out from Three uh, Hills Press, um, which is an imprint of Cornell University in time for the 50th anniversary of the uh, Adirondack Park Agency's creation. Um, so I'm really eager to talk with you, Brad. Thanks for coming on to the show. It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I wondered, um, you know, why did you write this book uh, about the Adirondacks? Why did you think this was a significant story uh, to tell? Well, because it, uh, it, well, it hadn't been told, and it was also um, uh, coming up on the 50th anniversary, and a, uh, it was a tremendous effort involving a lot of people. And it uh, was a story about sort of the high watermark of the American environmental movement. David was correct that the Adirondack Park was formed uh, over 100 years ago. It was formed in 1885. Um, and uh, permanently protected from the state land in the Adirondacks was permanently protected from logging and uh, development in 1894. But the Adirondacks is unique in a couple of ways. One is that it's really big. It's six million acres. It's the size of the state of Vermont. It's a state park that's the size of the state of Vermont. Um, and the other is that 60% um, of the land inside its boundaries is privately owned. And until the 70s, there weren't really very many regulations at all on how that privately owned land could be used. Most of it was working forests and estates. But there was nothing preventing an owner from, for example, um, signing up with a developer to build a huge uh, vacation home development on the private land. And my book is about a drive that happened between the late 60s and early 70s to put a regional zoning on the entire six million acre park that would prevent that sort of large scale development and keep the park's wide open character. Nobody knew back then that carbon sequestration was an important consideration. Uh, but as it turns out, the uh, protection of the Adirondacks from residential development, which was the drive in the late 60s and early 70s, preserved these huge unbroken forests, which we now know are some of the most effective ways of uh, locking up carbon in the soil. So. So the Adirondacks has taken on the Adirondack land use plan has taken on greater importance now um, because it can be seen as a model for other regions uh, that should be protected from development. I wrote the book for a whole lot of different reasons, um, but that was uh, one of the most interesting ones, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's a very interesting story. Um, I'm wondering if you could maybe tell us a little for those listeners who are not familiar with this part of uh, the U.S. and the Adirondacks. I mean, those uh, people who are familiar with the West know about big 
uh, federal national parks like Yellowstone or Yosemite and, and, and so on. Uh, one of the things that's really unique is uh, this is almost the only really large state park of this kind of size on the you know eastern uh, half of the continent, and um, I'm wondering how did the state park come about, and what were some of the key moments and decisions and tensions in the formation of the park. And then it seems like a second phase that's really important and interesting that the book focuses on is this land use and development plan that involves changing the zoning. So maybe you could first start us out with a little bit about the Adirondacks and, um, you know, how it became a state park and, uh, you know, some of that earlier history before we get into the big controversies that erupted in the you know late yeah. 60s and 70s. Sure. Uh, so the Adirondacks is this is basically a gigantic granite dome that covers most of the northern half, most of the northern part of New York State, um, and it's uh, it's covered with a very thin soils. Most of it is not suitable for agriculture. Uh, much of it isn't even suitable really for growing trees. Um, and so for until the mid 19th century, the Adirondacks was largely ignored um, by everybody and it was seen as worthless land. Then um, loggers developed, uh, loggers discovered the areas of the Adirondacks that were growing big stands of trees and they started cutting indiscriminately, buying the land really cheap, slashing everything on it of economic value and then just walking away from it. The land eventually went to the state for back taxes. And at the time um, in the 1880s, there was a severe drought and people were worried about New York State's water supply. And it was thought that this deforestation of the Adirondacks was contributing to uh, a crisis in the availability of fresh water for New York City and the Erie Canal. So the law was passed to stop this rampant logging in the Adirondacks. And all of the land that had reverted to the state for back taxes became the uh, state forest preserve. So, you know, 120 growing seasons later, this is some of the most magnificent, uh, unbroken, mature forest land in um, North America. Um, you're right to say that it's uh, the one of the largest um, parks in the east. It's actually the largest park of any size in the lower 48 United States. There are and it's two, growing, right? Yeah, well, there's a, there are a lot of um, conservation organizations that are gradually uh, buying and putting easements on private land so that it is protected and is, in, is de facto uh, part of the park. So yeah, it is, it is growing. The private land that's intermixed with the public land um, was the focus of my book. Nothing was really done to the private uh, about the private land until the law passed in the 1970s, which was essentially a six million acre zoning plan. And it was imposed on an area that had absolutely no zoning of any kind. It was deeply rural. And all of a sudden, uh, the state of New York said, OK, folks, here are the new rules. Um, you can only put one building on every so many acres, can't build near wetlands, have to build like this if you're going to be around a lake, so forth and so on. As you might imagine, this was really unpopular with the people who lived in the Adirondack Park, who had more or less had the place to themselves all these years. 
And what the book goes into is sort of the rural rebellion that was um, that was uh, sort of unleashed by the very sudden imposition of this very drastic law in an area that had seen no regulation at all beforehand. Right. Well, we want to talk about that. I, I was just um, also a little intrigued about this forever wild clause. Obviously, this related to the uh, state owned lands, but they essentially mandated, as David had alluded to in the opening, that uh, no development really could take place on the state uh, land, which is why they've, as you said, 120 growing seasons later, become these really kind of lush, uh, forested, forested regions. Yeah, um, the, yeah, well, that, that's a that's a good point, Adnan. And if you don't know about the Adirondacks, that's a key thing to know about it. Is that the the state owned land inside the park, which is about 40 percent of the of the total acreage is protected by this this clause of the Constitution that's known as the Forever Wild Clause. And that means that you can't even cut down a single tree mm. on state-owned land in the Adirondacks without a, uh, a, a referendum, a statewide referendum, that takes two years to set up. It has to be passed by the state legislature twice and then go to the voters to cut down a single tree. And it's, a, it's an extreme level of environmental protection and there, from the very beginning, when it was put into the Constitution in 1894, there have always been a small number of New Yorkers and people who love the Adirondacks who have always been willing to go to court the instant someone tries to deviate from that very strict standard. Mm-hmm. So the wilderness protection for the public land in the Adirondacks is probably the strongest in the world or among the strongest wilderness protections in the world, which means that the private land surrounding these public wilderness areas or these forever wild areas is kind of like the setting for a collection of jewels, if you will. Mm -hmm. And the environmentalists in the 70s were very concerned that if the private land was developed in an uncontrolled way, then the entire character of the park would be ruined because the, uh, you know, a wilderness area that's right next to a Ferris wheel or a big resort is not the same as a wilderness area next to a working forest. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. So um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how these activists went about and what were the forces at play in the, I I gather, the late 60s Yeah. to make this transformation and impose these new zoning uh, kind of restrictions on the private land, the 60% of the within the blue line. Um, yeah. How did that get going? And what were well, that, the yeah, conditions of that? That was a fun, that was a fun uh, challenge in this book because I had to get, you know, a lot of, I, I was 11 years old in 1970. Um, but a lot of people who uh, are reading this book, a lot of people who I hope will read this book, don't remember uh, what the late 60s and early 70s were like. And the growth of the environmental movement in the late 60s and early 70s was really, you know, the, the best analogy that I can think of is sort of the, the, um, either, the either the Me Too movement or the Black Lives Matter movement mm. of recent years, where suddenly this realization just sort of dawned on everybody that something was drastically wrong. And in the late 1960s and early 70s, Americans suddenly became 
intensely concerned that the planet was being suffocated and overcrowded to death. And um, a public movement arose to harness this energy and pass legislation to stop pollution and protect open space. And the fun part of the book was um, sort of telling the stories of that movement and how it did this really audacious thing, this really extreme and radical uh, zoning plan uh, on an area the size of Vermont and actually passed it into law. It took about five years of sustained effort, um, but it worked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, under Rockefeller in 1973, they passed the creation of this Adirondack Parks Agency that came with uh, all kinds of these zoning restrictions on the on the private land. Well, you alluded to already that, um, you know, that wasn't popular with all of the residents uh, who owned much of this private land in in the area. And I think, you know, for people who are you know, in favor of environmental regulation and are concerned about the planet and, um, uh, you know, uh, the climate crisis. Um, it's interesting to look back at this period. I'm wondering if there are any lessons to learn and, uh, you know, from this experience, and particularly because you talked about um, some of the people who resisted this. And I'm yeah. thinking particularly of uh, somebody you interviewed. And by the way, uh, listeners should know that in addition to the documentary research that you did, there, this book is formed by a lot of mm -hmm. extraordinary interviews with key participants on either, on both sides, yeah. on all sides, you might say, of this controversial move. I'm thinking particularly of um, Frank Casey. Uh, Casey. Casier, yeah. Yeah. Frank Casier. Uh, is, you know, these folks were not happy and, you know, really resisted. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about this kind of rebellion and its sources. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 That was a, that was a pretty fun and, and instructive thing to learn about, too. And as you you're right, I, I started this project as an oral history project, not as a book. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed about 60 people at length, you know, long form oral history interviews that were transcribed and reviewed and all that good stuff. So there is a tremendous amount of, of, of research behind this book. Um, and, you know, Frank Cashier was a, um, was a small scale developer who owned a furniture store um, uh, in uh, Saranac Lake, New York, which is the largest town inside the uh, blue line. It's the largest town inside the blue line, but it has a population of 6,000. So these are very, very small places we're talking about. And Frank had, you know, had a, had become wealthy by North Country standards by selling, uh, by buying big pieces of land and carving them up into lots and selling the lots individually, which is kind of the standard playbook for developers. And he was 54 years old when the Adirondack Park Agency law was passed. And so he'd had a whole career of doing things one way. And then suddenly, uh, without much notice or, or without much um uh, warning, the state of New York told Frank and other people who were in business like Frank inside the park that there was an entirely new set of rules now, that um, the way that you'd done business all your life was was over, and um, here are the new rules, read them and follow them, and you'll be subject to uh, criminal penalties if you don't follow them. Now, I'm a pretty strong environmentalist in my personal values. 
but I understand the feeling of being pushed around. And what I came to understand by interviewing people like Kashir, who really disliked the Adirondack Park Agency and fought against it pretty effectively, was that the state agency and the people who wrote the plan really hurt themselves in the long run by not treating the people who lived in the park as stakeholders, not really involving them in the process, not really listening to them, and not really um, hearing their concerns and their values before they released the plan. It wasn't, you know, there was no way that people inside the park were going to like what um, the state was proposing. They were going to be opposed to it in any case. But when the plan was released without talking to them first, they felt insulted. Even if they didn't have anything to lose economically, they were insulted because they hadn't been consulted first. And that caused the opposition to really coalesce and harden and become very determined. And even though it was a very small number of people and the vast number, the vast majority of of state voters supported what the park agency was doing, this very small determined minority made the Adirondack Park Agency a lot weaker than it could have been because they fought against it very effectively. So I saw all kinds of echoes um, back there of what happened inside the park in the early 1970s to what happened in America as a whole in more recent years when a very small determined minority um, essentially hijacked the government. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was struck by just to give a little uh, bit of the flavor of it. I was struck by this interesting cartoon that you included in the book from the Saranac Lake newspaper. Yeah. Um, columnist Bill McLaughlin. Um, I guess there was a hearing uh, about about uh, the changes. And um, so there was an editorial cartoon um, that was pillaring, I guess, Rockefeller's uh, administration for accepting, you know, or for passing this and, um, you know, what Rocky wants, Rocky gets. And um, it's quite, the, you know, quite a funny, uh, um, you know, kind of, uh, I'll just show it for those who uh, are on the YouTube uh, channel, they'll be able to, to see it. But I'm wondering, um, maybe you can characterize a little bit of the flavor of this uh, anti-government, anti-Albany, anti-big city elite uh, sort of sentiment that galvanized around resistance to the APA's foundation. Yeah, it was, it was pretty interesting. One of the most effective tools that the opposition of the APA used was humor. Um, they basically didn't have any power. Um, they knew that the law was going to pass. They knew that they really didn't have any recourse. And they were angry because they felt that nobody was listening to them. And so in those situations, groups that are excluded uh, from the process are forced onto the streets and they're forced uh, to, uh, you know, to communicate their wishes through protest. But in the North country, it's things are a little different because um, these are extremely small towns uh, where people who disagree uh, about a political matter uh, may be forced to rely on each other uh, for survival during a blizzard or if somebody's power goes out or if somebody needs a ride to the store and their car won't start. So it's very expensive to hate somebody in a small town. And in the Adirondacks, 
Um, what you saw was people who were at each other's throats about this law, um, cooperating personally and communicating their positions to each other through humor. And, um, and so Bill McLaughlin, the cartoonist who you uh, showed just there was, was one of the most effective people of that. He, he drew these very old fashioned 19th century style political cartoons for the newspaper in Saranac Lake that were quite funny. The one that you uh, held up showed a uh, Rockefeller sort of a Zeus on Mount Olympus handing down the law to um, Peter Payne, a deputy of his who was, uh, who was dubbed the dark angel. And, um, you know, and it was basically telling the Adirondackers sort of out, get out of heaven. You're no, you're no longer welcome here. Um, but the, um, the use of humor was, was the way people inside the park communicated with each other. But if you weren't from inside the park, if you were from Albany or New York city or away, um, you were treated, uh, with, uh, dis- anything that ranged from disdain to violent, um, opposition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it seems like that was the sort of division of people who are outside who might come and use the park or come to Lake Placid and go skiing at, you know, um, you know, White Mountain, Whiteface uh, Mountain and um, backpackers and tourists and environmentalists, hikers and and their alliance with state agencies um, well, or, or, or the government versus a lot of these local residents who had different approaches to uh, the land use. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah. the heat really came from a cultural difference. It wasn't really about dollars and cents because even the people who lived in the park full time knew that the tourists were the biggest source of jobs and the biggest right. source of dollars. So they may have uh, agreed intellectually that you had to protect the scenery in order to keep the tourists coming. What they didn't like was the idea of being pushed around by people they didn't know who didn't respect them. Uh-huh. And so when I took take away lessons from this project, I really am struck by how, how much more effective a plan like this can be if it starts with a listening process where everyone involved, including the people who violently disagree with the process, are, are heard and taken into account and relationships develop between the individuals involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's an important insight. I mean, you know, now uh, I'm just struck uh, so much by the relevance of this story to our current um, wave of environmentalism. And I mean, there's many things that seem so different in terms of the character of it. But one thing that um, seems similar is the language of urgency and of emergency that is driving the desire to implement government uh, kinds of policies and impose those um, in a way that has some tensions, it seems to me, with democracy and democratic kinds of governance. And it seems like in some ways the story you're telling uh, 
allows us to understand that if we're actually going to have some kind of a solution that is successful, although there are many successes for the Adirondack Park, um, but if we're going to have a successful solution, it's going to need to be something that maintains democratic governance rather than seems like an authoritarian imposition from outside that hasn't taken into account, you know, people's sentiments and interests and concerns otherwise it's just going to be seen it's going to be resisted in in some ways yeah Um, yeah absolutely i'm not naive enough uh you know i'm not so naive as to think that by simply talking to the rural residents of the adirondacks you could get them to like the idea of comprehensive zoning on the land that they owned when there had been no zoning before they were never going to like that idea yeah um but um but the the sense of insult that arose from not being consulted first kind of supercharged and hardened their opposition. Mm-hmm. And I think that really, uh, you know, I'm no fan of the Tea Party or um, the um, the uh, the insurrectionists who tried to take down the United States government. But it is true that elites in the United States have spent a long time ignoring the needs of people who have um low wage jobs and have low educational backgrounds. And so, you know, like the people in the Adirondacks, the sense of, of, of uh, marginalization and, um, and grievance that these people have is not a, it's not wrong. It's not a fantasy. And it's something that the people who want change will be will be far wiser if they take into account and take it seriously when they push for change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I'm wondering if there are any other uh, lessons or takeaways um, maybe about the successes of the, of the, of the century long project to uh, protect this uh, environmental zone. You know, what, what other sorts of lessons do you think this history oh. really has? Oh, yeah, there are there are lots. You know, today I'm working on a piece, uh, a magazine article about the um, the uh, growth of the Nature Conservancy. You know, right now, the Nature Conservancy uh, protects something like 119 million acres around the world in 72 countries. And they are there. The Nature Conservancy is now in the business of protecting entire watersheds, entire valleys. And, you know, they instead of protecting an individual rare plant or animal species, they protect the natural system that allows that species to, um, to survive, to sustain itself. Uh And, um, and the, um, so the, these, these biome level uh, conservation projects are being pushed forward in Latin America, in Asia, um, even in Russia all over the world, people are starting to look at the preservation of entire um, bioregions mm-hmm. as the key to preserving species diversity and um, checking climate change. So you can, if you dig into the details of how the Adirondack Park Agency wrote its land use plan, you can see some of the early tools that are now in wide use for plans like these. And, you know, as we discussed before, you can see um, some of the mistakes that um, made it less effective than it should have been. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Fantastic. Well, I mean, I, I thought not only was it a fascinating story, Brad, but um, it's also wonderfully uh, written and I think a really compelling read because you also capture the cultural dynamics and the life, you know, the stories of the people who were uh, involved. So it really comes to life, not just as a kind of question of the policy history and the institutional changes, but also on the ground, how people reacted to it and how, you know, various activists uh, struggled to create, you know, this land um, uh, development plan, land use development plan that, as you're pointing out, can be seen as a model or at least developed some of the tools that um, we may see used or are being used around the world to uh, combat climate change. So it's a really important uh, and fascinating book, A Wild Idea, How the Environmental Movement Tamed the Adirondacks. David, I wondered if you had any Yeah, this is just such a, be a beautiful uh, interview, and I want to go up and see the leaves change. Uh, I can... I can, I can <laughs> I'm better hurry, David. I know. I'm stuck. <laughs> Did I hear that the Adirondacks, the name Adirondacks, is a pejorative? That the Mohawks looked down on the Algonquins and called them bark eaters? And that's what it's... Yeah, that's kind of a legend, yes. But, but yeah, that is, uh, that's often repeated legend is that it's a corruption of a... Uh, it's a corruption of an Algonquin word that means bark eater. And the idea was... Uh, look at those dumb people who live up in the mountains where nothing will grow. They're forced to eat bark. But that was um, the Mohawks looking down on the Algonquins, as I Yeah, understand. the Mohawks lived on the agricultural lands of the Champlain Valley and um, uh, St. Lawrence River, uh, where lots of stuff would grow and there was lots of game. But up in the mountains um, of the Adirondacks, there's very little soil. Growing season's really too short to to put in a crop and you know it, it was a very very difficult place to live but i, I found that there. reassuring that <laughs> that the first peoples were kind of like us where they looked down on other tribes and came up with <laughs> nicknames for them and uh, yes it, well, I mean, you know, it's interesting because I think it is a really harsh landscape in some respects you're pointing out hard to grow um you know People who've wanted to evade organized state control have always historically gone to these harsh landscapes. Oh, yes. You know, uh, where they could evade kind of uh, government control, live, you know, their own life, but also it came at the cost that it was a harsh existence, you know. Right. And so some of that fierce independence that uh, your story uh, characterizes in these uh, residents who are resisting the imposition of these new zoning changes, it comes, I think, in part because they are inhabitants of oh, a harsh uh, a harsh zone and in fact it's only foolish people or you know people who want to resist you know that kind of control people like john brown one of my favorite places in the mm -hmm. you know, adirondacks is uh, john brown's farm near lake placid just outside lake, lake placid um you know which it was so hard to live there yeah you know i mean he, he just barely kind of eked out an existence and was constantly dealing with with poverty. But he kept up uh, the farm, partly because it was a link on the underground uh, railroad close yeah. to the border. Yeah, that's a good point. You pay a heavy price uh, for living in an area like that. But what you get is the feeling 
um, mm-hmm. that you're independent. The, 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 and that's of course an illusion. You know, if yes. you, if you live in the Adirondacks, you're absolutely dependent on the power company and the guy who clears the road of snow, um, and the fire department and the ambulance just as much as anybody else. But being surrounded by wide open space and having your own little plot of land gives you the feeling that you're a homesteader on your own and you don't need anybody's help for anything. And that, too, is very similar to what happened out west in the 1980s with the wise use movement, where these people who were essentially completely dependent on federal welfare for their livelihood as ranchers Mm -hmm. um, put on cowboy hats and rode around and acted like Clint Eastwood and said that they were the last free Americans um, because that was the myth that they believed in. Fascinating. Well, thank you. I hope you come back. The name of the book is A Wild Idea, How the Environmental Movement Tamed the Adirondacks. It's written by Brad Edmondson. Please go buy this book. That way uh, we can get Brad to come back. So Thanks, David. I'd be happy to come back. Lots thank of things you. to talk about. It was a beautiful interview. And, Appreciate uh, that. Yeah. Came at a perfect time. What a great way to introduce Autumn talk about the Adirondacks. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks for inviting me. Thank so you. Long. And, and thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein. Before you go, did you have an opportunity to see the Ali, the Ken Burns Ali doc on the PBS? I, I have not yet seen it. It is definitely on my list, uh, but I'm... Um, You know, uh, I've read a lot of biographies of Ali, so I'm a little concerned. Like, uh, it was sort of like when uh, Spike Lee came out with his Malcolm X film, another figure that I've studied a lot and really admire. I'm nervous. What are they going to do (laughs) to my image of this great, you know, figure and, and hero? So I'm looking forward to it, but I'm also a little you know, nervous that it might not be a very good uh, in capturing what I think is so fascinating about Ali, which was, you know, his radical temperament, um, but done in such an ebullient and joyous fashion, how he used humor, language to critique, um, you know, oppressive powers and how he, you know, he's one of the most um, I've been uh, around the world in the Middle East. People absolutely loved Muhammad Ali everywhere. Like he was a hero to millions and millions. And a lot of Americans don't really recognize or understand how beloved a figure he was because he stood up, you know, um, against the Vietnam War for racial justice while at the same time being, you know, just the most charismatic and beautiful, you know, uh, ath- athletic person. So. Anyway, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I I'm not I don't know as much about Muhammad Ali as as you do. I was reluctant going into it thinking how many more movies and documentaries can I watch about Muhammad Ali? It's I don't know, it was 10 hours. I got through it in a day. I just it, it was riveting. I mean, I I'm a big endorsement. Uh, yeah, it, it, and uh, I cannot recommend it enough. It's pretty, I think they did a pretty interesting job. The one thing that I loved, they do the story of his refusal to fight. And the Supreme Court was doing linguistic gymnastics to try not to send him to jail. They just knew this would not look good. 
and they finally figured out a procedural error that they could cite. And I think the entire Supreme Court ruled, no, he's he's not a draft dodger. He's a conscientious objector. And he finds out about it. He's in Chicago. And they, he holds this impromptu press conference. And somebody asks him, uh, Muhammad, now that you've been cleared and you're, you're not going to go to prison, do you have faith in the system? Does the system work for you? And he says, I may be assassinated in an hour. He said, this worked today, but no, <laughs> I don't have faith. The consistency that he had, no, the, the system doesn't work for me. Uh, I just got lucky here, but there'll be other things that I have to keep an eye on. He was a, uh, a miracle. And uh, uh, yeah, anyway, uh, Hopefully, definitely will watch it. Yeah, I mean, it's the kind of thing where, as is so often the case with a Ken Burns documentary, it can just wash over you. It just, it's, uh, you know, we all have our Ken Burns issues and the problems with the PBS, but it's Muhammad Ali who is, it's, you know, it's just the life. He is embodiment of America. You know, the story of America is just contained within one man's body. It's uh, what a story. Anyway, thank you. I hope we can discuss it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And thank you for bringing Brad on. What a great, uh, you know, what a great story. Thank you. You are listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Coming up in seconds is Peter B. Collins, who was recently inducted into the San Francisco Radio Hall of Fame. And it's always good to uh, to see you, Peter B. Collins. Uh, did you have a chance to see the uh, the Muhammad Ali story? No, I have not yet seen it, David. I, re- I recommend it. Uh, it's good to see you. Where are you now? You're up in Lake Tahoe? I'm on the north shore of Lake Tahoe. We came over the, the Donner Pass last night. What'd you eat? And so I'm... <laughs> What'd you have to eat? We encountered, we encountered no cannibals. Yeah. Uh, but those are the common jokes that we get. And that's I why I set you up for that. I am at the cabin of the friend of a friend, and this is the first time we've really gotten away uh, since the COVID lockdowns. Yeah, and, and tell we, me about the fires. Well, we uh, we had a lovely walk this afternoon along the Truckee River, and I can tell you that the air is very clear here. Uh, the nearest fire was the one that was threatening South Lake Tahoe. And that is called the Caldor Fire. That is now described as uh, over 90% contained. Good. And I don't know, the, the, the idea of percentages when you got wildfires and the winds are back up. Um, we've had fairly strong winds, but there's more moisture in the air. And the shift in the weather for about a week gave the firefighters a great opportunity to get ahead of things. They're saying that the Dixie Fire, which is the one north of us that was the largest in California history, 
uh, is not quite out, but uh, they have it fully under control. There is a new fire that was set by an arsonist. Really? Uh, we can we can take PG&E off the hook, uh, right. the rogue utility, uh, for this particular one. Uh, they, they have arrested a woman who is from Palo Alto. The fire is near Mount Shasta. That's a four-and-a-half, five-hour drive. And uh, the description is she had a Bic lighter in her pocket. Um, uh, I don't know the details of that, but that they, they, they how do you know, how do they fairly... know? How do they know? How can they do that kind of research and figure out who? That's amazing. Be, because, um, like the old saw about so many criminals who return to the scene, arsonists uh, do like to see the uh, devastation that they have caused. Mm. And uh, again, I don't know all of the details about this particular case, but there was a recent one in Sonoma County that was put out in fairly short order. Uh, and there is video footage of the arsonist uh, watching the firefighters arrive. Wow. Uh, so the other big fire is in Southern California in the Sequoia National Forest. And I don't have the latest details on uh, the uh, estimated level of containment for that. But they have been trying to uh, save this 1,700-year-old tree called the General. Uh, they put some kind of fancy aluminum foil <laughs> around mm -hmm. it. Uh, and hopefully that doesn't uh, cause it to, uh, you know, bake with the juices in. Right. Uh, it does. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, at the moment, um, California is better off than it was a month ago. The general air quality, except in the direct fire zones, is vastly improved. And so, you know, we're heading into October. Uh, there has been a little bit of rain in the northern yeah. part of the state. Yeah. Uh, so what we need is is a good solid uh, wallop uh, of water from the Pacific. In, in the Bay Area, we were doing rain dances. Uh, oh, it's almost two weeks ago, but we got an eighth of an inch of rain. But it was just confirmation that water can still fall out of the sky. <laughs> <laughs> but then you get the mudslides. So then there's that. Oh, it's it's a cycle that. You know, it, it occurred before humans uh, crossed the Donner Pass right. <laughs> uh, or came in by ship to find the gold in the hills of California. I'm not the historian that uh, Professor Hussein and uh, his guests are, but uh, I can tell you that whenever I pass through this uh, area, I'm always struck by uh, what it was before uh, the white man came, before the Pony Express, before the... Conestoga wagons before the Union Pacific Railroad. Um, and, you know, we do have to accept that wildfires occurred before uh, utilities and arsonists caused them. I heard uh, that lightning. Yes. Yeah, some, some have said that L.A.'s air is the cleanest before the climate change. There was a period when L.A.'s air was the cleanest it had ever been, that the I think it's the Humash Indians. I'm not sure uh, the tribe that there were constant fires in that bowl that just stayed there. You couldn't get rid of it. Um, yeah. 
so you know the this is part of the whole uh, systemic problem that is clearly climate related uh, no matter who wants to deny it and we had a drought for a long period of time there was uh, I'm, I'm sure the number is lower now but there were an estimated uh, 100 million trees that were dead and were active fuel uh, for lightning strikes or other causes of, of wildfires. And we also have this, as you know from living here, David, the climate cycle, uh, the seasonal cycle, where we don't get rain generally from May to October, uh, sometimes November. And uh, so the combination of these factors, the uh, five-year drought, then we had a kind of two-year break where we got adequate rainfall, and now we're back into a, a very serious drought cycle uh, where, you know, some reservoirs are at 12 percent uh, capacity. Um, and unfortunately, the call to uh, conserve uh, is not being heeded by most Californians. They, The governor who couldn't, uh, because of the recall that had handcuffs on him, couldn't really uh, press hard to force people to conserve water, uh, including uh, the farmers, uh, who, by the way, don't meter the water that they use <laughs> and get so much of it uh, through federal subsidies, through uh, these various uh, historic uh, water projects that uh, do provide the water that's needed for the San Joaquin Valley, which is a major breadbasket uh, bread for America. Um, at any rate, uh, the conservation statewide is under 2% during the month of August. Uh, in my own community, uh, in Marin County, we have the lowest level of our uh, water supplies uh, in history. And we have achieved about a 15% uh, rate of conservation. Uh, but it's not enough. And we Is that, desperately Was it better uh, 40 years ago in terms of conservation? I would assume um, it was, I, I would assume Americans were better at conservation 40 years ago than they are now. Well, uh, around 40 years ago in the 70s, there was a serious drought. And we're very aware of it in Marin County because they put an emergency water pipeline across the bridge that connects Richmond to San Rafael. And on the east side of San Francisco Bay, there is a, a massive water network uh, that in some cases does go to the farmers in the Central Valley, but it, it comes out of the uh, watershed of the um, American River and the Sacramento River system, which has hundreds of miles of waterways. Um, most of it is not brackish. Uh, only the parts that come uh, closer to the bay have a salt uh, component. And so there, there's a lot of ability to wheel water around uh, in the north part of the state that is east of San Francisco Bay. And I'm speaking with my hands right now, and I apologize yep. to your podcast listeners who can't see my careful map uh, making <laughs> with my hands. <laughs> so uh, Marin is now looking at, they, they took that pipeline off the bridge because they decided they didn't need it. 
Uh, and so we are now considering an emergency plan to put in a new pipeline that uh, would bring new supplies of water into Marin as early as next summer if we have another very dry winter. And I'll just wrap by saying that the long-term forecast is, is not great. Uh, we do not have an El Nino system predicted, and that's where we get uh, higher than average uh, rainfall and snowpack right up here right. in the Sierra Mountains. And let me, let me turn this to a discussion I had with my partner, Kathy, just an hour ago. We're along this uh, beautiful path on the Truckee River, which does have water in it. And up in the sky, there were quite a few contrails. And, you know, I, I do traffic in conspiracies, and I've talked with you about this before. I prefer to call it uh, uncovering cover-ups. But the one that I've never bit on is the chemtrails claim. And I have listeners who uh, nip at me all the time saying, Peter, you've never covered chemtrails. And I've said, well, I've never found any evidence uh, to support it. I can look in the sky and I see those white, you know, uh, the exhaust that's coming from jet airplanes. But God damn it, by now, if the government had a secret weather modification program, don't you think they would have kicked it in? Right. <laughs> or maybe the, this is their modification program, drought. Uh, it's bad for business. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, Who knows? I don't buy it. I don't buy into yeah. conspiracies that are bad for business. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, the we were talking about the Adirondacks and how the forests are the perfect carbon sequestration vehicle, except when they burn. There, there's been talk mm -hmm. about why don't we plant more trees? Well, more trees mean more forest fires if you don't maintain them. So it's not that simple. Donald Trump. He asked yeah. Donald Trump, he used to be president. Remember him? Yeah. They did an audit in Arizona. This Not week. really. Well, supposedly <laughs> they brought in, I guess they brought in their own auditors and they determined after a careful count that Actually, not only did Trump lose, but he lost by more than what we were told. Is that the truth? Well, let me quibble with the terminology. Your, your summation is correct. Uh, Trump lost ground in this uh, phony recount that was conducted by the cyber ninjas who had no experience in election auditing whatsoever and fumbled their way through it. Uh, while chasing uh, conspiracy theories that were launched by Trump, like, you know, bamboo paper ballots that were dumped uh, from China and uh, that ultraviolet light would show watermarks that were never uh, embedded in any ballot anywhere in the state of Arizona. But, but let me come to the most important claim uh, or, or the most important disqualifier of this entire effort to undermine confidence in elections. And that was they chose to only audit Maricopa County. Now, 
Trump lost Maricopa by some 40, 45,000 votes, and Biden won statewide by 10,000 plus. But you could never get a definitive result by only recounting Maricopa County. It is the bluest of uh, the counties in Arizona, and Arizona is not that big. To recount the entire state uh, would not have been that much more difficult if it had been conducted by professionals with experience in auditing elections. And David, I, I've paid a lot of attention to election process and election integrity uh, triggered by the Bush-Gore contest in 2000. And I continue to follow a Google group of election integrity activists. The term election integrity has been hijacked by uh, pro-Trump forces. There is a murky foundation from Milwaukee, uh, the Bradley Foundation, that is funding Facebook groups and other efforts um, that use the term election integrity to describe the need to fix elections that didn't go Trump's way. And that's a very selective approach. Uh, I support real election integrity. I support real audits, even when the election came out the way I prefer, uh, because we need to have confidence. And there are critical problems with electronic voting machines, uh, with tabulators that can be hacked. And so, uh, you know, this is another one of the cases where Trump has been able to seize on an inch full of uh, concerns and blow them up to a 10-foot pile of bullshit. Mm -hmm. And his whole effort, and, and we've seen this, uh, you know, uh, the guy who ran the uh, cyber integrity organization, a former Microsoft guy, a Republican appointed by Trump, that's CISA, C-I-S-A. Uh, he said, look, no major uh, flipping of votes occurred uh, across the whole country. We know that Bill Barr, uh, who was a reliable toady to Trump, uh, uh, you know, broke ranks. We, we know that Dan Quayle now from the new uh, uh, Woodward book uh, was counseled, uh, was counseling his fellow Hoosier, Mike Pence, and saying, hey, Mike, I retired to Arizona so I can play golf every day. And I can tell you that there is nothing going on here that's going to be flipped in Trump's favor. So Homeland Security. Have, his own Homeland Security Department, Chad something, said it was the mm -hmm. most honest election in American history. No, that was the CISA guy. The CISA guy said, you know, most honest and least. Uh, and he was uh, with Homeland Security? It, it is a division of Homeland I see, Security. I see. Okay. Yes. Uh huh. Um, Chad, whatever his name was, he was a border nut. And I don't know that he actually weighed in on okay. uh, the election. Um, so now this is, is spreading. Uh, Pennsylvania uh, has a Republican-backed uh, effort to uh, rewrite history. 
And the oddest one is that Governor Greg Abbott, the no mask, uh, you know, guy presiding over a lot of dead uh, vaccine free people in Texas, he got a, a public message from Trump saying, I want an audit in Texas that he won by a huge margin. Now, uh, that doesn't make any sense except as part of an overall scheme to undermine the entire election process, to game the system, to confuse and misdirect people. And we know that uh, nearly 80 percent of Republicans uh, buy Trump's bogus claims that Joe Biden didn't win. Yeah. Yeah. It's a uh, now after Arizona, they're saying it's a fake audit. They're, they're not trusting the results. Well, you know, I did not submit to it, but Trump held a rally in Georgia on Saturday night. And the headlines that I read from it were that he continues to claim that uh, the Arizona audit discovered fraud. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, his people ought to be really confused by now because his lies are so big and so far from any factual basis uh, that at some point, and, and I heard that only Newsmax and OAN uh, carried the rally in Georgia and that Fox had, uh, I don't know, reruns of Gutman or I, I don't know what they were doing, right. but they they declined to cover it. Um, so in terms of your news hygiene, are you resistant to keep track of Trump because it's so foolish, it's so bogus, there's so many more important things we should be talking about it's beneath contempt, and yet this is serious. You have this buffoon who is destroying our our belief in democracy. Not that I mean, there, as you pointed out, we do have serious problems with counting the votes uh, properly and and voter suppression. There are serious issues facing this country, evictions, homeless, Medicare for all, COVID. And looming over all of this is this alternative universe that is menacing. But it feels like if you pay too much attention to it, it's you're why pay attention to it? But. <laughs> How big a well, threat? David, how big David, a threat is I, he? I, I love your choice of news hygiene. Yeah, <laughs> uh, because you know I retired from my routine of daily podcasting, and I was doing two long form interviews a week at the end of last year. And uh, I, I feel better because I don't subject myself to Fox News the way I, I used to. Uh, I, I have looked at, at Newsmax and OAN. Um, I also, you know, closed my Twitter account at the end of last year because it, it just annoys and sometimes infuriated me. So um, 
when I was actively working, I compelled myself to pay attention to the rallies. I, I watched many of them. Uh, and so I have given myself permission uh, to cleanse. Right. And it, it, it's it's kind of like a colonic. Um, and I so I, I don't uh, pay close attention. I try to read uh, summaries uh, that keep me abreast of the most extreme. But but here's the the most immediate issue that we're seeing uh, today. We're speaking on Monday. The Republicans in the Senate refused to uh, provide a single vote to raise the debt limit on the debt that they ran up. Now, you can argue that, uh, you know, Biden added a, a trillion uh, with the CARES Act earlier this year. But fundamentally, it is the uh, Trump tax cuts that have contributed to the rise in the uh, cumulative national debt. That's not the annual deficit, but the cumulative debt. Uh, and the Republicans are now trying to stick the blame for that on the Democrats. And so I have, you know, fingers crossed here that this could be the moment where Joe Biden recognizes that he's got a green light, the filibuster fix. And even if it's limited to, you know, certain issues like voting rights and uh, the debt ceiling, uh, and the, uh, the, you know, the so-called 3.5 trillion, it's only uh, $350 billion a year, uh, fully less than half of the defense budget. Uh, but this is a crucial turning point because if the Republicans hold firm and there's every indication that they will, they are <clears throat> willing to go right off the cliff when Trump orders them to. Uh, and, and so, I'll put it this way. If the Democrats don't change the filibuster in the next two to three weeks, the devastation to our economy, to our credit, to our credibility, a government shutdown, um, these things go beyond just who takes the political blame. Right. And so. And they're going to have to pass. They're going to have to raise the debt ceiling by getting rid of the filibuster. That's what yes. they're exploring. Yes. And, and you know, the false claims from the Republicans is they're really trying to put the brake on the tax and spend Democrats. But the package, the $3.5 trillion, is actually paid for and will not <clears throat> drive up the deficit, will not require uh, an increase in the debt limit uh, by itself. Uh, any time in the foreseeable future. But this comes back to what we were talking about before, that Republicans are spoon-fed bullshit, and they believe it. They embrace it. They're proud of the ignorance that they are all lining up to uh, salute. And if the Democrats don't fix the filibuster, uh, I believe they will lose the House and possibly the Senate in the midterms next year, and Joe Biden will be neutered, and it will set the stage for more blame shifting that could make the Democrats irrelevant uh, well into this decade 
And of course, the gerrymandering that is underway in Republican-controlled states right now is a factor in the probable loss of control of the House next year. So to me, the only way the Democrats can turn that, that whole trend around is to stand up, nuke the filibuster, pass the Biden agenda, which, as I've told you before, I never expected him to be as progressive in his domestic agenda as he has been. Right. And he really he really has empowered Bernie Sanders in ways that I also did not expect. And if they don't take these steps, then the people who have defected from the Democratic Party over the last 10 years will say, there's there's nothing the Democrats did for me or can do for me. And that, you know, they, they will stay home or they will, some of them will vote for Trump a second time. Well, I think Schumer can get rid of the filibuster unilaterally. It's a Senate rule. I don't even think he has to put it to a vote. I think. No, he needs the vote of the Democrat. He needs 51 votes. But he doesn't to have to change 50. the rules. He doesn't right. have. He doesn't have Mansion and Cinema, and uh, you know possibly uh, uh, John Tester from Montana. Right. And so this is where Biden has to sit on those Democrats, and whether he greases them with with pork or he uh, threatens to, you know, find ways to unelect them in the future, um, he has to use the levers of power. Yeah. In the manner of LBJ. Um, and, you know, LBJ was a, a, a guy who was uh, crude and uh, I, I found him disgusting in many ways. But he knew how to run the government. He knew how to get his packages through Congress. And the fundamental changes that he made, the Voting Rights Act, the Great Society, the um, uh, you know, uh, the housing laws, um, <clears throat> those were comparable to what Biden is sitting on today. And so we really are at a crucial moment. It does tie back into elections, big lies, and the way that Trump is able to manipulate his base, a minority across America that is controlling this system. But uh, the, the fuse is lit and the Democrats have a very limited opportunity to stop it out. The, the problem with Biden is he's not going to West Virginia or Arizona and holding rallies. <laughs> yes. That's what Bernie yes. said he would do. They asked him, what are you going to do? when you come face to face with the Democratic establishment and Mitch McConnell. He said, the first thing I would do is I would take my agenda to the people, the campaign. It's a permanent campaign. I don't see Biden doing a national address explaining what is in the soft infrastructure bill. If the I keep saying this over and over, if the American people knew what was in these bills, Somebody would explain to them what was in these bills articulately with commitment and passion. They would be outraged 
that anybody would question this. So the question is, does Biden really want this? Does Schumer really want this? If they really wanted it, they could they could get it passed. Well, I think Biden has gone halfway. Uh, he has made some critical comments, um, critical in terms of supporting this package and, you know, the, the bigger uh, uh, effort to uh, help the middle class. Uh, but you're correct. He has not uh, hopped on Air Force One and gone to the people uh, to pressure these um, uh, dino senators and really force their hands. And, you know, Joe knows how it works. You, you, you say, you want this and I need this. Let's do it. <laughs> uh, but so far, he has not uh, he's not stepped up. And unless there's say, a surprise, he, he's got limited time unless there's a surprise. It uh, we, we have to wrap it up. But I'll, I'm telling you, I, I'm repeating what you just said. If Pelosi and Schumer and Biden cannot get this passed, uh, they're in so much trouble. I, but I think I'm hoping that they understand that and that we're not privy to what's going on. I, I have to believe because I'm a fool and Professor Marianne Cummings will remind me how foolish I am. I have to believe <laughs> that... A lot of this is a kabuki dance. Mansion will cave. Cinema will cave. And we'll get both these infrastructure bills passed. Because if if they don't get passed, they don't run on anything next year. They but, have it is, but it is the, the debt ceiling issue here that I think gives them the cover to say, you know, I wanted a bipartisan uh, outcome. I wanted to maintain the, the filibuster, uh, uh, but when the Republicans refused to raise the debt limit and put our country potentially into an economic tailspin, uh, I could not, I could not uh, yeah. refuse to act. I, uh, we have to wrap it up, but I'll use this as an intro into Professor Marianne Cummings, but first I'll get a comment from you. There has been mockery of Joe Biden for thinking he could be bipartisan. And, you know, when he started his presidency, there were how many senators voted to impeach Trump? Eight or ten. There were there were ten Congress people there, you know, Romney in the Senate. There were a couple of senators who voted to impeach Trump. I, if I were Biden, A, I would prefer to pass these bills in a bipartisan fashion so that everybody can benefit from it. You don't make it political. This country's in desperate straits. Let's pass this infrastructure bill and the other one, and then you go home to your district and take credit for it. You're a Republican. Run on this. Let's save the country. When he saw that the that it, that the impeachment wasn't as uh, partisan as we expected, maybe he thought that he could work with the other side. 
Was it foolish? Probably, yes. Everybody has gone back to their default positions. But Trump was such a disruptor, Biden had to give the Republicans an opportunity to to show how they were going to behave. And we're what? How many months into his presidency? Eight months? It's still, he's given them enough time. Now, if now's the time to get rid of the filibuster. He couldn't have done it any earlier. It made sense. It makes sense for him to try to be bipartisan. But if he doesn't get rid of the filibuster, it's well, and and he let, let's assume that he will uh, ultimately uh, give Schumer permission and deliver Tester, Cinema, and Mansion in some manner to support the change in the filibuster. Uh, how much damage is he going to allow with a government shutdown and all of the implications of failing to raise the debt limit? How far will he allow that to go before he comes to Jesus? Yeah, we'll find out. We'll talk to you next week, sir. Peter B. Thank Collins, PeterBCollins.com. Enjoy Lake Tahoe while it's still there. I'm having a nice break. Yes. Good to be with you. Thank you. I'll talk to you next week, I hope. Let us now go to, I'm going to say Michigan. I think Professor Marianne Cummings is a physicist. She is also a parks commissioner in Aurora, Illinois. And it looks like you're coming to us from Michigan today. Yes, from my parents' house. It's good to see you. Give them my best. I saw some pictures of them on Facebook. You Oh, my parents. Yeah. Yeah, That was last weekend. Yeah. They were uh yeah, very uh They are the most photogenic people. They'll be a hundred and three and more photogenic than I will have ever been ever in my life. Yeah. (laughs) Certain people like movie stars. Yeah. They're very, very handsome couple. Well, picking up I give them my best, please. Mm-hmm. I have to ask you about the weather in Michigan. Gorgeous. Is it, it season- was gorgeous. Is it seasonably cool? No. Is it unseasonably cool? I was out cool? in Ann Arbor around 6 o'clock this evening outside, and it felt like a delightful summer evening. Right. All right. So not everything's all bad on the way down to Armageddon. I mean, there are little, you know. Right. Nice little moments along the way. Yes. Yes. And I was uh, depressed to read about the Amtrak derailing. Oh, there was an Amtrak derailing? Yeah. I didn't hear about it because I didn't take Amtrak. Yeah. Uh, I'm rooting for it. I was stuck in hell, which was somewhere in Indiana, on an Amtrak train that lost all power, didn't have air conditioning. I remember. Couldn't get out of it. I remember. I remember. It was, um, Yeah. But I still believe in, I mean, I used to take the train all the time between Ann Arbor and Chicago when I was a graduate student. It was lovely. There's no place you're going to that you have to get there so quickly. There just isn't. I guess in my case, that would be true. I'm critical to no one these days. So None of us are critical to anybody. If you have to be someplace, 
call zoom you know <laughs> we, right. you don't have you to your cell phone i, I, mean, thought, I haven't true. i haven't flown since december of 2019 i have no desire to unless to get out of the country but i have no desire to get on a plane especially some some guy stormed the cockpit of some airline last night so let's talk about my foolishly believing that Biden and Schumer are going to act and they're going to get rid of the filibuster. They're going to straighten out mansion. They're going to straighten out cinema. This is never going to happen, right? This is this is just going to die on the vine, won't it? The, the well, I don't think a lot of the Democrats want to kill the filibuster. That's the I other problem. I don't think problem. they do. I mean, it gives individuals tremendous amount of power, gives them power. I mean, these guys are in for the long haul. You know, they're in the minority often. They're in the majority sometimes. Uh, As I say, I I don't think that these people are in there for so long and they've normalized to both conditions of being in the majority and the minority. What they're most afraid of is somebody who would really disrupt things like, oh, let's see some random person, Bernie Sanders. You know, they're, look, the overwhelming concern of all of these guys is pleasing their donors. And it's not just to get reelected. I mean, there is just a whole industry in many people's careers over the money that churns around politics. Just the legion of Democratic consultants and the Republican consultants. And, you know, they just everybody's got a good gravy train and they, you know, they they're friends. Uh, they'll be friends when the majority flips or the minority flips, you know, it's just, I don't worry so much about that. However, I do. And, you know, I like being positive, you know, despite my normal disposition. Um, I have a feeling that this reconciliation bill will pass. Really? Yeah, this is why. Uh, Look, this infrastructure bill was originally Biden's infrastructure bill was two point five trillion dollars. Remember, a few months ago. Right. And basically, Republicans stripped and some Democrats. It was actually 12 Democrats who stripped everything out. The Republicans aren't going to vote for it. They don't want to give Biden anyone whatsoever. They don't care. So we're talking about 12 Democrats that who is it? Pete DeFazio, who's on the um, who's on the Energy Committee, just called you know just crap. <laughs> they were just they were just loaded up with fossil fuel money, and they stripped everything out, dealing with climate change and everything else. And that's when, uh, and I believe it was Bernie Sanders, you know, helped craft. But Bernie Sanders is such a man; she could save the world and just basically not care to take credit for. It. But this is right. the the reconciliation bill is basically Bernie's bill. It's something that he's going to be shepherding. And you know, we had discussed about a month ago the these two separate bills and why the Democrats are doing it this way. But I think there's now some wisdom, <clears throat> at least leverage, here for Bernie. I'm not even going to say the progressives, the progressives in the House. I wish they would just not even speak now. I mean, they're so lame. Ro Khanna, I heard a little bit of that, where he's already conce- he's already giving way. Oh, it might be less than 3.5. To- Shut up. <laughs> I mean, take Bernie Sanders lead. Just don't even speak, guys. But the thing is, there is something in that bipartisan bill that those 12 senators want. You know, there's usually an imbalance between what 
people between progressives and regular corporatists, be they Democrats or Republicans, because the corporatists want to keep the status quo. So basically, they don't want anything new happening. They just want things going on. And it's usually the progressives that want to change something. In this case, there's something that those 12 Democrats want, or certainly their donors want, and their donors are relying on. Uh, Kristen Cinema, do you think that she's any great shakes on her own? No, she's, you know, creature of the party and the donors. And so I think I, I, I mentioned last week that I thought Bernie Sanders was being uh, uncharacteristically um, forward. I mean, he's usually been very diplomatic and and very guarded and cagey, but uh, he's been pretty uh, unequivocal and unambiguous. We are passing the 3.5 trillion, or neither bill gets passed. 3.5 trillion is the compromise. It is the barest, barest minimum. If we if we don't start now with climate change, then there then everything else is. So, what does that look like if the the progressive caucus, I think Pramila Jayapal runs it. What Mm -hmm. happens if they kill both bills? They, they take the blame. What does that look well, like? Well, People's Party then. I mean, it's like well, they well, kill play both, it out because they the, kill both bills. If they if they kill both bills because they you know they because there there was a certain obstinacy in, um, in in insisting on the bipartisan bill pass first, which is a joke because that's where all the powerful get everything they want. Right. Right. I think that. I mean, I'm for that. Let let me just say that if I discovered that we could have passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill and Bernie's bill, the reconciliation bill was completely defanged. And I find out that the progressive caucus killed both bills. I would say, yeah, it's about time. Josh Godheimer and Manchin had a worry about us killing something. Yeah, well, and it's going to get, and I'd say, and guess what? It's going to get worse for Godheimer and Manchin. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently, uh, there one thing I've always given Nancy Pelosi credit for, which is uh, consistently better than John Bader, is that she knows how to count. One, two, three, five, ten, twenty-two. Right. And apparently, uh, there's a list. Uh, I, I got it through the uh, the Intercept, but in many places, uh, uh, David Sirota's uh, page has it. But there's a whip count about people who are willing to tank the bipartisan bill, who are willing to basically vote down the bipartisan bill if they don't get the reconciliation bill tanked to it. So not tanking the reconciliation bill; they're tanking the uh, standalone bipartisan bill. Right. Um, that's, I think, what you meant to say. And now the, the uh, whip count is up to 22. It was 16 last week. And I'm happy to see that Chewy Garcia has added his name to the yes. It was just Jan Schakowsky in Illinois. So I've been calling people. I mean, I've been telling people, call your Democratic congressman and saying, why are you not agreeing with this? You know, why do you not, why do you not want to save the planet? Um, notably absent from this list is Sean Caston, who is in the district, uh, well, I'm in Detroit now, uh, but who's in the district next door to me in Aurora in Naperville. And my old friend, Bill Foster, <clears throat> who is our current congressperson, they are, they are no response or uncommitted. Yeah. 
And they are the big, the guys that brag about being scientists. Sean Caston in particular brags about being an environmental scientist. Right. So they, they, we, we've talked about this. I'm just thinking out loud about blowing it up. In yeah. the past, I've said, well, I'm voting for Bernie, but now I'm voting for Biden. Now I'm thinking, okay, the Democratic Party will get blown up by Pramila Jayapal and the Progressive Caucus. People like Josh Gottheimer, the the problem creators, the problem solvers, they call them, are going to say, we can't deal with these people. And we'll say, exactly. And then it's time for a civil war in the Democratic Party, yes. a crack up in the Democratic Party. Now, I'm for that. If they don't get rid of the filibuster, if they don't pass Bernie's reconciliation bill, mm -hmm. uh, I would if I I would expect my representatives to kill both bills and say, uh, no, a well, bird in the hand. Well, it's not killing both bills. I think what you mean to say is that uh, they wanted to bring the, the, the corporatist Dems wanted to be, Gottheimer in particular, had an agreement with Nancy Pelosi to bring the bills to the floor. I don't think the reconciliation bill is ready and Nancy Pelosi uh, was able to postpone it because, as I said, Nancy Pelosi has a, a reputation of knowing how to count, and the votes weren't there. In other words, you know, there were, there were no no Republicans were going to vote. They don't want to give. Or there were like maybe twelve. I want to say there were twelve Republicans that were willing to vote, which meant you had to have at least sixteen Democrats vote against the bill. The by, we're, we're talking about the bipartisan bill. So it's not that both bills go down. It was that the bipartisan bill as a standalone vote was going to go down. Nancy Pelosi typically doesn't put things to the floor that she knows are going this. She doesn't have the votes for. So she was able to tell Josh that, hey, you know, we're going to postpone it until Thursday and we'll have maybe we'll have the reconciliation bill ready. And Bernie Sanders, as I said, has been absolutely adamant. It's three point five trillion. I don't know if they have much time to make enormous amounts of changes to the reconciliation bill. But um, but we'll see. Um, as I said, the dynamic here is that this bipartisan bill is critical for the 12 Democrats who really wanted it, you know, who are getting all this fossil fuel money. I mean, it, it, as a standalone, if that tanks, that's just fine because that's a horrible bill. I mean, that is wretched. That is a minus. That bill with a much stronger reconciliation bill would be a net plus. Plus, the reconciliation gives us tools to just go continue on in the right direction. And it's not just a paper over. Um, so now, what do you say? I'm just thinking out loud here because I, I would ex I'm, I'm repeating myself just because I know that the AOC backtracked and voted present on the Iron Dome. So that that was kind of surprising. She owes Tulsi Gabbard an apology. That girl yeah, does. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I would so be what? I you would know, be OK. She's performative. She's out there. Boo. I don't know what it is with her. 
Um, I mean, is she trying to tell us that, you know, her existence on the floor of the house is more gut-wrenching than the citizens of Gaza? I mean, well, she wants I, I don't to be know senator. She's trying she, to communicate. She's, her explanation was a word salad. She wants to run against Schumer. No, she wants to be a yeah. senator from uh, New York. Yeah. So you've, uh, you've got to be willing to crash both bills and say to the American people, and we'll do it again. We'll do it again. You're, these days of bending to the will of the corporatists in the Democratic Party are over. Well, um, as I said, if the progressives in the House just all shut up and let Bernie Sanders do the talking. Yeah. I mean, I've been a little disturbed with what I'm hearing because, you know, after listening to politicians for 30 years, you kind of you, you, you can just sense the wiggle room that we've got to pass both bills. They didn't say the entire $3.5 trillion. We absolutely have to have climate action there. Well, what does that mean? I mean, you know, that's, uh, that can be anything. Uh, you know, they, they've been saying a bunch of things that um, just lead me to believe that they're going to slide or they're going to cave at some point, uh, whereas Bernie Sanders has just been out front and center. So, uh, you know, I, I have, as I said, the dynamic here is a little bit different these uh, these a holes over there in the Senate, the, the fossil fuel fueled <laughs> senators, really need this bill. They really need the they really need their bipartisan bill. So it's just going to be a matter of okay, uh, if you get what you absolutely need, then we get what we want. Mm-hmm. If they, if, now I don't even care about uh, Democrats. If progressives can't do this, if progressives cannot pull this off. Then I say both people's party. But um, in in the meantime, you know, they and they're they read their Twitter feeds. Holy crap. You know, I just kind right. of look in there and going, yeah, they're getting some pretty much unambiguous pushback from progressives, even their fans that you we've got to do something. We've got to do something now. So the, and I the, said that on the climate, we absolutely have to do something. The we po- had, uh, there was a big climate event Uh uh, Greta Thunberg started this uh, Climate Fridays and Climate Strike Fridays, and we had one, a big climate rally run, sponsored by several groups, but principally sponsored by the progressives of King County and had quite a nice turnout at Simmons Park in Aurora. And again, you can tell there are, amazingly enough, there are still people wanting to run and and think they can be the ones, they can be the progressives that turn over the house. So more power to them. You see what happens to the people that, you know, came before you and you're determined to do a better job. Right. So we had a great number of speakers over there and we had a big contingent of high school kids show up. That made me very happy to see. Um, So we were, uh, but who didn't show up were the two congressmen, Bill Foster and Sean Caston. Mm-hmm. They showed up to the climate strike last year, but that was when uh, our friend Rachel Ventura was running against Foster in the primary. So Foster was making it a point to show up to all these lefty things. Ooh, how distasteful. But, you know, he felt he had to do it. So I'm, uh, I'm actually feeling like, you know, even though... The Democrat, the Democratic leadership desperately wants for things to go back to normal. 
you know, the, the more upscale liberals who have nice, hefty 401ks are just desperate for things to go back to normal. But uh, there's just too many people too uncomfortable. And none of the young, young people are comfortable at all with the prospect for their future, either career wise or just planet wise. So I think they're stepping up to the plate. Yeah, I think. Oh, and speaking of which, I just found out, because I've been kind of offline um, most of the last 24 hours, uh, Nina Turner has decided that she's filing for candidacy for the primary. I thought she was going to be with the Young Turks. Well, (laughs) again, I read her Twitter feed and who? There was a... There was a lot of opinions expressed because of that. Most people were very nice and thought, but expressed great. We all thought that her big announcement was going to be that she was running again. You know, she was saying that well, I have a big announcement for September. Okay, well, that uh, that primary is the first uh, week in May, so that's not many months. No, I mean, it isn't. <laughs> now is the time that right. you regroup. I hope that she is... I mean, there's, I'm not the only one, but I was actually in Akron and I was at the uh, headquarters there. And boy, when I looked at the precincts they hadn't covered up to that point, up to two days before election, and I'm this weird white chick and I go out and at least in the, the two days and canvassing in front of the polling place, I think I flipped at least 50 votes. I mean, if there were an army of me, if there was a, just an army out there, it's sometimes it, yeah, it, it's, there is a big media campaign war, but I'll, I'll tell you, there were, there was a lot of votes that she could have gotten if they just had a good ground grain. And I'm sorry to say it, but I was there. I'm not the only one saying it. Jordan Sheridan was in, in, uh, Ohio, in Cleveland and he was, expressing a little concerned about how weak the ground game was. I mean, they had a lot of events, they had a lot of media uh, coverage, but there's a certain point beyond which, you know, media saturation is not going to do much more good. They, the, the Chantel people, the Dems were, the regular Dems were cagey. They, they jumped on one thing that Nina Turner said a year before, and it wasn't the bowl of half bowl and half bowl comment. It was something about, oh, I don't know, something gravely controversial like the Palestinians are humans too. And they basically whipped that up into like, you know, she's anti-Israel and, and they got a whole bunch of uh, Republicans in the suburbs to vote in that primary. But the good news is, is that Nina Turner did win in Cleveland and in Akron. And as I said, that we had that consolation party in Akron, just kind of outside. A guy walks by and says, oh, right, you're with Nina. Great. I want to vote for her. And we all said, if voting was today. It's too late. Oh, man, he walks off. And so the, everybody's rolling their eyes. And I had to tell people, hey, don't roll your eyes. Why, why didn't he know? I mean, you guys have been here for three months at least. Right. He should have known. You know, there should have been somebody in every single precinct just canvassing and, and keeping track. So that's the way you win campaigns. And I hope that she's listening because her message, the good news was that her message resonated. I mean, she won. She won decisively in Cleveland and in Akron. But uh, Chantel Brown overwhelmed her in the suburbs. 
So I think it's winnable. And we don't even know what this district is. I mean, that's that's the wild card for everybody filing right now is that, you know, the I think we'll know what our districts are in the middle of next month. Now, you're a scientist. Right. Sometimes. Yeah. A physicist. Mm hmm. A Palo Alto woman, that's Stanford, has been uh, charged with setting the fawn fire in Shasta County. She was up there and she tried to boil water, didn't quite pull it off and set fire to Shasta County. She's a scientist. She worked for Gilead Sciences in Foster City and is an SAT tutor to help people get into Stanford. She's a scientist who could not boil water and set fire to Shasta County. Well, ask any of the senior technicians or engineers if they let physicists even touch any of their equipment, you know, to particularly. Hey, I nearly set fire to my house about 20 years ago when I was doing some plumbing. I was like, Holy crap. You know, it's like a little spark and start. We don't, my house is, uh, what, 1888. The insulation in many of my walls is old newspaper, which uh. is fascinating when I, you know, have to redo a room and out uh, falls newspapers that are over 100 years old. Right. With the headlines. But anyway, um, yeah, it, look, you're, you're stupid until you do something is kind of been my motto. Well, we have some late breaking news. Saturday Night Live has announced this year's cast. This is big. A.D. Bryant, Pete Davidson, whew, Kate McKinnon and Cicely Strong will be staying. On OK, Kate McKinnon, I know. Yeah. She's, she's and Pete great. Davidson is staying. We're losing after eight seasons. Beck Bennett. Very funny. And they're adding three new cast members, Aristotle Athari, James Austin Johnson, and Sarah Sherman, two white men and one white woman. Bowen Yang is now a series regular, as is Chloe Fineman. Uh, okay. Never heard of him. Well, you don't watch <laughs> SNL. Huh? This is important news. This is what everybody's talking about. All right. So, let me ask you this. I, I've been let me ask you this. for quite a while. Let me give you a fantasy. Mm, oh, okay. And th they say this is Biden's toughest week. Well, a month from now, and this is never going to happen, but let's say Pelosi, Schumer and Biden surprise us. What would your tune sound like? What what, well, what would happen? Let's respect. I but well, let me just say let, let's let's say they pass Bernie's reconciliation bill. Yeah. Would you say that grudgingly, as I would, I would grudgingly admit that it's not perfect. It's far from perfect, but it's the best they can do, and it's something to run on. Biden has kind of surprised me. Would you say that? 
I would say that Bernie Sanders has come through brilliantly. Okay. Playing with the pieces he has on the chessboard. Would you say, as a you are a politician, would Bernie's reconciliation bill be enough for the Democrats to run on in 2022? I think it could be. Certainly, if for you, the, for uh, you, per, for you, for me, if the medic, if if the parts. Of course, we don't know what's going to be in the final bill, but. Right. If the three main aspects for healthcare stay in that bill, you know, the uh, the big one, the ability to negotiate drug prices, that is that's huge. That that is not an incremental change. That will be a game changer. I just that don't will, I don't see that. I don't see how Well, you know, but that's what's going to you know, that's what's going to make a, a lot of everything else work because the improvement of Medicare, which absolutely has to happen. You know, because your teeth and your eyes and your ears are still attached to you. Mm-hmm. And the lowering the age to 60, that shows you that the world didn't explode when you did that. And as I said, you know, just the very nature of insurance is that the bigger the risk pool, the more stable the system. So the, you, you, everything you do to expand to younger and healthier makes the system more robust. So those three things alone is a path to Medicare for all. That's probably why various elements are fighting them tooth and nail. Because particularly the negotiation of drug prices, that's, that's huge. And since it affects everyone, I mean, there is not a single person in this country that hasn't had issues with medical problems, either them or their family, fighting with insurance companies, the cost of drugs, that that would be a big boost in and of itself. I think the climate, I mean, uh, I had met some uh, some retired, a couple of retired physicists and also somebody who is a ret- engineer in at the utilities at this uh, rally Friday. And they're really big on the, uh, the, the energy grid infrastructure. Because right now, the technologies we have now for uh, even wind and solar, they're, they're still in development. I mean, there, there needs to be many, many more generations. But what really enables all this to happen is to have a much more efficient energy grid. And then you can start putting coal plants offline, putting, right. you know, you can start putting subcritical nuclear reactors online, <laughs> happily burning. By the way, I, I want to give you a compliment because you've been disabusing us of carbon capture yes but it's nice to believe that it could happen i read a piece i think it was in the economist about these new companies that are going online that are Mm -hmm. capturing carbon and then turning it into some kind of crystal and then burying it and you think well this sounds great then at the end of the article they say you need to take about 45 billion tons of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere either every day or every year or something. Yeah. I mean, and these we things, will eventually these things probably ta- develop technologies. These things for- take like a thousand tons yeah. out of the atmosphere, like nothing. Yeah, but what they're trying to do is keep the fantasy that you could you can continue poking holes in the Earth's crust and extracting carbon. Right. That's been, you know, disturbing the graveyards of dinosaurs or whatever. 
uh, you know, and it's just, I think um, it was, I think it was Tom Hartman, I was last hours of ancient sunlight. He described it as like all the catastrophic things that have happened in geological time, you know, over millions, hundreds of millions of years have been massive ruptures in the earth's crust and a bunch of stuff spewing out into the atmosphere. And it's taken millions and millions of years to just settle down. Um, we're doing that, you know, artificially ourselves. We're fracking away, we're drilling away. And the uh, carbon capture and sequestration, the other part of the use it, this was the bill introduced in the Senate that both Kasten and, and Foster, the two congressmen in my area, support, is not just carbon capture and sequestration, it's enhanced oil recovery. And there's more and more, and even John Lash noted, as you read the fine print, more and more of the latter. We're like, well, we drug this oil oil well. We, we Instead of drilling another one, let's like get all the oil we can out of it because eventually when the pressure goes down, you can't just, you know. We can drill it. horizontally to, now. Well, but you also have to do what they call hydraulic mm-hmm. mining, which is a fracking by another name. Right. And so that's uh, so anyway, what it is, it's it's just basically a cover for the fossil fuel industry. And they come up with these bogus calculations scientists do, just like the scientists that worked for the tobacco companies come up with this, these calculations where we can come out net. And that's the buzzword net carbon uh, footprint of zero. We keep spewing the carbon and then all these. Now, largely mythical technologies will just, you know, kind of capture it for us and take care of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. Thank you. Say hello to your parents for me. They're a beautiful okay. couple. Enjoy spending time with them. And we'll see you Thursday with the professors and Marianne, I hope. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, Professor Hussein, Professor Bick, Professor Lee will be joining us. And... And Faluna. No, he's... He's gone. He cannot come back for like two more months. Oh, boy. Right? Everybody... Solving more important problems than we are. Everybody everybody contact Professor Ian Faluna and say, why hast thou forsaken us? Yeah. All right. Thank you, Professor. Peace out. Thank you. Professor Mary Ann Cummings, Razor Girl on Twitter. Well, that's our show. Dan Frankenberger is not able to do Community Billboard tonight. I want to thank, well, first I just want to do, I want to play this person. This just cheers me up. No, we're not going to play it. Okay, what's going on here? I'm going to wrap it up. It's amazing that I was able to get through today's show without any any uh, technical issues. Don't uh, jinx it yet. I want to thank our guests, Dave Cyrus, right? Who's who's here? Who's typing? Oh, okay. Dave Cyrus, uh, Mayor Mayor Osorio, please go to osorioforcongress.com. Give him money, please. Howie Klein from Down With Tyranny, David Cobb, Dr. Harriet Fraud, Professor Adnan Hussein, and pick up the book that uh, Mr. Edmondson wrote 
called Wild. I think I got that right. Then we had, let's see now, nine o'clock. Oh, Peter B. Collins. Go to peterbcollins.com to listen to all his podcasts and radio shows. And of course, Professor Marianne Cummings. I'm David Feldman. Let me see if I can get out of here with my dignity intact. Uh, Do I have it? Okay. I don't have it. Hang on. Uh, Remember to uh, visit us over at the David Feldman Show website. Sign up for my newsletter. While you're over there, if you would like to attend a live taping, hit the attend a live taping button and we'll send you a link and office hours and hours. It's the first Friday of the month, October 1st. That means office hours and hours. I'm David Feldman. Thank you for joining us. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way are about to be exposed. These bunch of pedophiles in Hollywood are gonna be exposed for who they are. I don't care what you think about fraudulent Sleepy Joe. He's a sex trafficking, demon-possessed mongrel. He's of the left. He ain't no better than the Pope and Oprah Winfrey and Tom Hanks and the rest of that wicked crowd. God is gonna bring the whole house down. I said he's gonna bring the whole house down. He's going to burn the whole thing to the ground. He's going to expose all these bunch of pedophiles. I'm telling you, he's going to expose Kamala Harris for the Jezebel demon that she is.